Hey everyone, welcome to Horror Haven Podcast. I'm Dylan. I'm Sierra. I'm John. And I'm Becca. And tonight we're going to be talking about The Exorcist from 1973. We're also going to be having a little trivia competition between Sierra and John. It's um, actually the same game as last time. Yes, yeah, we were Sorry. supposed to have a new game, but I didn't do what I was supposed to do. I'm so. still going to destroy, <laughs> so... I'm kidding. I'm kidding. John, you're still uh, going down, though. Just so you know, I'm sweating throats. Yeah. Oh, shit. All right. All right. Enjoy the episodes. I want to play a game. Let me die right now. Which is it? Which is it? What kind of game? Turn off the light. You'll see what kind of game. Here's how we play. I ask a question. If you get it right, Steve Bibbs. Come on, it'll be fun. It's an easy category. Movie trivia. Alright. So, normally we would roll the dice to see what category you get, but John and Becca are in a different location, so I'm going to be picking at random. Non-biased. You can't just give, Non-biased. You can't give me any Texas Chainsaw Massacre questions, and you can't give John any Exorcist questions. Okay. Deal. I think it'd be fun to give them to, like, Becca. <laughs> Becca's our phone a friend. I don't want okay. I don't want to start any arguments though if Becca doesn't answer an exorcist question and just John going, Becca, you need you should know this. I don't know who you are anymore! <laughs> exactly. Yes. It's right. okay, he does that to me all the time anyway. Can your child be my phone a friend? I think that's pretty cute, you could do that. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> but right. she's only seen one horror movie. She's like name the actors that play Reagan. <laughs> Exorcist, Becca's like, Michael Myers? <laughs> <laughs> it is Mike Myers, it's gotta be, I'm pretty sure. Alright, so we're gonna yeah. play the first to six. Okay. And, John, you will go first. Alright. Alright. Question one. In The Hills Have Eyes, what are the names of the two Carter family German shepherds? Oh, shit. Um... Okay, uh, I saw this movie a long-ass time ago, and, um, the only thing that I really remember from it, now I hadn't seen the remake. That's the remake. remake, it's the remake, yep. Oh, God, um, I only remember the names of some of the, like, demented freakazoid fuck, like, uh, fucktrons. Like, Can I give you a hint? Go ahead. They are Disney characters. They're what? Disney, Disney characters. characters. Male and female. And it's from one movie, so they're not like, you don't need to mismatch, mix and match Disney movies. They're two characters from one Disney cartoon. One Disney cartoon. I'm gonna go with Doc and Snow White. Nope. Nope. God. Beauty, Beauty and Beast. Oh, man. <laughs> Alright. That actually Beast. was gonna, that was actually gonna be like, like, no shit. I was going to say, like, I bet my... your daughter would probably know this one. <laughs> right. That's actually going to be one of my, like, processes of elimination. I would but... not know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sierra. Yes. In Signs from 2002, 
What kind of headgear does the son of the protagonist, Graham Hess, believe protects against alien waves? Oh, um, an aluminum foil hat. Correct the mundo. Bingo! Alright. Thank so. God Dylan's obsessed with science. <laughs> Alright, John. <laughs> I'll do this. Let me find a good one. The two detectives in Seven from 1995 are played by Brad Pitt and what other actor? Uh, uh, the narrate the, the fucking Penguin movie. Morgan Freeman. <laughs> yes! Penguin movie, yes! <laughs> Alright. He's keeping track of your cards so that we know when, when one of us gets the six. Uh, yeah, he's got that one who narrates the Penguins. Yep. Yeah, he does the March of the Penguins. Right? right. He narrates it? Ah, that's what it was. March, March of the Penguins. Yeah. I like that that's the movie you choose <laughs> yeah. to know him from. Not like <laughs> Shawshank yeah. Redemption, like everybody else. Yeah, oh shit. Nah, I got my Morgan Freeman uh, business. Priorities, Roger. Who else is watching Penguins and John's watching? <laughs> Alright. Sierra. What is the name of the hunchback assistant in Dr. Franken of Dr. Frankenstein in Frankenstein? It's not Igor. Or Igor. Nope. Um. I remember that it wasn't Igor. Fuck. Hold on. I feel like it's something stupid. Fuck. I give up. Fritz. Oh! Fritz. Nice one. <laughs> I was going to say start going with food items like pickles. <laughs> Alright. John. How many members does the criminal gang have in The Last House on the Left from 1972? Oh, dude. Um, I watched this a couple years back. You should rewatch it. It's really solid. Oh, absolutely. Um, oh, dude, I'm pulling straight up. I'm pulling straight up from memory from shadows. Can I? Can I get in the bubble? I'm, and I'm gonna let everybody listening go ahead and cringe because I'm sure they're screaming it out. But uh, uh, can I get in a uh, in a bubble below hint? It is under five. Under five. I'm gonna go. Well, I'm gonna go with three. Three's a magical number. The answer is. Four. Yeah! Uh, that's my, yeah. I'm embarrassed. Move on. That's okay. You're good. Alright. Sira. Yes. In Trick or Treat from 2007. I got this one. The yeah, group of four I... women are revealed to be what type of monster? Werewolves. Which... Yep. Most everybody else would blurt out vampires. That's always their first go to. <laughs> yeah. I just remember the awkward werewolf sex scenes. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. When it's teenage, when it's when it's teenage hot women, and everybody just assumes they're vampires. Yeah. The fact that the uh, main werewolf is sucking her true blood. Yep. That's the biggest giveaway. Yep. All right, John. All right. In what Halloween film does antagonist Michael Myers not appear? Three. Correct. Yeah. Season of the Witch. Alright, so it's, it's tied right now. 2-2. Two, two. Good job, John. Sierra. Yes. In the fly from Ooh. 1986, okay. what giant creature does Veronica dream she gives birth? Isn't it like a maggot? It is a maggot. Nice. Good I boy. love Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> yes, yes. Pink the fly. Yeah. I like white. It's a contortionist. Really? 
Yes. He probably deems himself the, very lucky. Have you guys lucky. seen the video of Jeff Goldblum looking at, at tattoos of Jeff Goldblum? Yeah, and yes. he rates them on a scale of one to five Jeff Goldblums. <laughs> yeah. He rates them on Goldblum. <laughs> no, the best thing oh. is Jeff Goldblum reading thirst tweets. Yeah, yes. that is my all-time favorite thing in the world because he's just like, I don't, I don't. He's the funny. world does not deserve Jeff Goldblum. I think one of the things that's he's so gone. great about him is uh, he like, I think he's so flattered by the cult following. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and he like, I don't think he entirely like understands it. He just, he just kind of adores it like a parent would. <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like a parent looking at their kid as like amazing, and even though they're not that great. <laughs> Right, mm-hmm. exactly. All right, John. Uh, what Footloose actor also played in Friday the 13th from 1980? Footloose actor. Walter was in Carrie. I can give you a hint. Oh, no, Footloose is Kevin Bacon. I'm in the wrong mythos. Yes. Walter uh, was Grease. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember if Depp was in Footloose. Depp is not in Footloose. I'll give you that. Name an actor from Footloose, John. Yeah, name, <laughs> name, name, <laughs> name an actor from Footloose. You know what? I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna go with the only one I can think of. I'm gonna go with Kevin Bacon. Correct. That's not the answer. You got it. It, it is. is Kevin Bacon. Bacon is in uh, Friday the or is in. Uh... He, yeah. That was his first movie, Friday the Thirteenth. Oh, I. For some reason, I was thinking Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, that's why you said Death. Okay. I, I said Death. <laughs> I got both of them. Except, like, for the Footloose, I was thinking Grace instead of uh, Friday. <laughs> we didn't know if we were going with Bacon, Travolta, or Depp. We were very confused. <laughs> oh, man. Life is hard when you're a mentor and you're hard in person. It's okay. All right, Sarah. Okay. What is the ancient Egyptian name of the titular character in The Mummy from 1932? The name of The Mummy? Yes. Um, give me a second. From 1932? Yes. King something or other, right? No. Give me a second. I know it. I like. I know it. I can see the name in my head. Um. Um. I know. I know this too, and this is making me very mad. I was thinking King Tut, but I know that's not who it is. Mm-hmm. But like, ah, uh, because they reused the name. I'm pretty sure when they remade the movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. Imatep. Yep. They I, was, I was. Yeah, I was gonna say if they read, that was gonna be my only guess. That's gonna be like. I, knew, I remember. They knew it. they they reused it in the Brendan Fraser one. All right. Yeah. New, new rule because we're tied up at three. If the person doesn't know, you can steal the answer if you know. Oh fuck yeah! You're going down, John. <laughs> yeah, that. I just there you go. Okay. Now my throat is slack. John. Right. In Fright Night from 1985, what is the name of the neighbor Charlie suspects is a vampire? Uh, if it makes you feel any better, I don't know this one, so I definitely won't steal it. Oh, man. I have the, the cover of this movie as a coaster for the house. Oh. <laughs> uh, if I don't know what Sarah doesn't know, I'm just going to pass on it. It's Jerry. Jim yeah, didn't know it either. He's sounding smart, but he's just reading the answers. <laughs> well, no, the, I, the reason, I, me and Paul always joke about this, me and my brother Paul, because 
like we talked about this not too long because there's a line at House of Thousand Corpses when uh, Ray Wilson's like, Jesus Christ, Jerry! <laughs> like, we always joke around about that. Anyway, I'm sorry, we'll keep Alright, Sierra. What is the name of the pub that protagonist David Kessler visits in the start of An American Werewolf in London? Slaughtered Lamb. Correct. Nice ball. I really like that movie. And, like, at every convention, they had all the signs that people made, and I always wanted one, so I remember it. Right. Nice. Alright, John. Who directed Alien from 1979? Ah, is it, uh, Final answer? Uh, yeah, I'm going to go with Cameron. False. James Cameron. Siri, do you what? know the answer? I don't know the fucking answer. The answer is Ridley Scott. Oh, why did I say Cameron? Alright. I think it's Weaver, James Cameron. Dylan actually knew that answer, I'm sure, because he's, for whatever reason, he's in love with aliens. Anything alien. I think the fun. I, I think. I think the funniest part about this is going to be the, the comments from people that are cringing while they're listening. <laughs> and like, you run a horror podcast. <laughs> right. You write books. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Fuck you. We can't be perfect. All right, Sierra. At the end of Night of the Living Dead from 1968, the deputy mistakes what character for one of the undead and shoots him. I'm going to say the wrong name. I always do this. <laughs> I always call him the wrong name. I can't remember his normal name. Or I'm thinking of his right name, and I think it's the wrong name, so I'm not going to say it, because remember the whole episode, I kept calling him the wrong name, because to me, he looked like a different person. Okay, well, you have to name a name. It's the main character. I know who it is. I just don't remember his name. Are you passing it to John? Yes. John. I can't give you. Uh, uh, I can't give you the name. I was just gonna say it was the black guy. Yeah. <laughs> the, the black guy that uh, is in the Candyman. Because like, he's in the remake. Yeah. The one I'm talking about from the '90s. Mm-hmm. Like that actor played him in the remake. I can't remember his fucking name. Um. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna. Uh, I'm gonna go with Bill, but no, that's not it. Close. It's Ben. It was Ben! Fuck! I thought Ben was the name I kept calling him. What did I keep calling him? I don't remember. Now I know his name. His name's Ben. And I was, fuck, I should have just said it. That that guy was in Candyman, right? The the actor that played him in the remake? Um, Yeah, Tony Todd. Yeah, Tony Todd. Tony Todd was the chillest motherfucker at that convention we went to. (laughs) We just kept, like, walking into him, like, fangirling over other people. Alright, John. What Huey Lewis in the News song plays when Patrick Bateman dispatches Paul Allen with an axe in American Psycho? Is it uh, Power Love? Mm. It is not. Seriously. Oh, that's back Hip to, to be square. <laughs> Hip to be square, correct. All right. It's it, back to the future, I'm thinking I would put it. Yeah. Still yeah. Right. I stole it, I'm it sorry, It is 5-3, Sierra could win this right I'm now. I'm super duper competitive, John, I'm sorry. All right. It's not a problem at all. This bothered me to lose somebody with superior intellect. <laughs> Alright. That's the first What <laughs> insects overrun the hermetically sealed environment of Upson Pratt and Creepshow from 1982? Um, a monkey. Wait. Insects, Sierra. <laughs> Wait, oh, I was thinking about the monkey thing. Wait, what? What insects overrun the hermetically Oh my god, roaches! Correct. 
Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. The world of darkness. expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! The one hope. The only hope. The exorcist. All right, so The Exorcist was released in 1973. It was adapted from a novel by William Peter Blatty that was released in 1971. The film was directed by William Friedkin, and it starred Ellen Burstyn, Linda Blair, Max von Sydow, and Jason Miller. That one was easy. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the book was inspired from a 1949 exorcism of Roland Doe. And it follows the demonic possession of a 12-year-old girl and her mother's attempts to win her back through an exorcism conducted by two priests. I just read that off Wikipedia. I'm not that good with words. <laughs> and we're not ashamed. Um, the budget for the movie was $12 million and the box office for the movie was $441 million. Which well, a, is quick, a quick note on that. I, I had made a post about this on my Facebook this week. I got a discussion about this with somebody else that I work with. And I'll leave their name out of it uh, to be polite, but uh, uh, they were arguing with me about the significance of the, the remake of the It, Stephen King's It, last year, mm-hmm. because uh, they were talking about how they feel that the remake It was, was one of the greatest horror movies of all time. Like, first of all, there's kind of a waiting period to be on that list. Like, you know, you can't just like shove movies onto the greatest of all time all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so their point was, like, well, you know, it's well the record for, like, the highest earning R-rated movie of all time. And I was like, hold on there, Hansel. Like, <laughs> I, I was like, hold on there, Hansel. I was like, I was like, The Exorcist held that record for fucking 
years. Yeah. And it's one of the top 10 most earning movies of all time. And the, and the Exorcist was released back in the early 70s. And since then, we've had an over a 5% inflation rate in America. Yeah, you have to think of the inflation because... And, and so I don't understand why they go by numbers or why they go by dollars rather than ticket sales. Exactly. Because ticket sales are going to tell you how many people went to see it. And when you adjust for inflation, The Exorcist made well over a billion dollars if it were to have been released in 2017. Yeah. Not only that, The Exorcist was not released during Halloween season. It was not released during Blockbuster season. It was released the day after Christmas. Which and is a weird ran, time for... Which for, is the yeah. dead time of year. Exactly. You know, and so it's like it was in the dead time of movies, and this thing completely just went on to do fantastic things. And it, to this, and it was, I guess I'd have to look into it. I'm not real well versed on the release of the new yet. I've, I've seen it, and it, I want to preface by saying this. I like the new yet, okay? But uh, The Exorcist back in the 70s was the first one at the time, first already movie to be nominated for Best Picture Award for me from the Academy. Yeah. And so I don't know if I'm almost positive it was like it was not nominated last year right not that i'm aware of but and, i also so, don't look into it too much yeah i didn't care so for the I movie just, too like, much so i just didn't like, even look into it like talking metrics and everything else like you know at least in sheer box office numbers like thinking about that like back in the 70s like blowing down 400 million fucking dollars yeah it's you know? it's an insane number and right I, it's funny if to they want to loan that money to me <laughs> I'll yeah, give you sure. my bank account information. It's yeah, it's sure. crazy to think about too because I had made a comment to Sierra while we were watching it, and this movie came out only five years after Night of the Living Dead, yeah. and it's crazy to see the how horror evolved from the sixties to the seventies in five years. Yeah. How different yeah. horror is. I think I and but I think that's a whole point. The whole part of um, the horror movies in the seventies was that they were pushing those boundaries that were set for them. Yeah. Which we talked about in our last episode, but that was a big part of the 70s in general was that they were trying to be edgier, darker, scarier. Well, absolutely. And I, and I think that this um, is a fantastic piece of horror conversation. And it's well, a lot of these things that, um, you know, everybody kind of looks at in horror movies today. Because, like, last week you guys covered Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's one of my largest regrets I wasn't able yeah, I'm we, sorry, I fell asleep and we like forgot that you lived in a different time zone. Oh, I, we I did totally the exact same fucking thing. confused. Yeah, the we were sitting here like, like where is John? We were supposed to get on like a half hour ago and seriously right. like I gotta go to sleep, I have to wake up at four. And I, and, and when I and I did the same thing because I've been busy releasing uh, the big red devil, and so I haven't been sleeping lately, so I passed the fuck we're out. We're buying a paperback copy of it, by the way. Oh, you guys don't have to do that. Dylan, I'll have Dylan's like, do. Dylan's like, Sierra, do you want to read it? I have the digital. And I was like, um, no, I need the paper. Like, I, I just, I get distracted if I'm on, um, like a phone or a tablet or whatever. So I'm like, oh, no, absolutely. I need to, like, I need the paperback. And I like, I like having, like, a physical copy. Oh, absolutely. So. But I'm just, like, I'm just saying, like, you know, we have extra copies coming in. So, you know, I, uh, I kind of know the guy that, that, you know, writes all this stuff and everything else and he's pretty cool giving away you know some free copies to, to you guys so like if you guys haven't bought it yet i'd be happy to send along now we want to support your work well i'm absolutely humbled and honored as always uh, you know a lot of times like some of the some of the reactions that we're already getting for this thing like it almost i almost want to kind of shrink and hide away 
some of the compliments that we've been getting. Aww. And, like, because it's, I, uh, I guess growing up, like, I never once would have imagined that people would actually be interested in anything that I've created or written. So to have people... It's surreal. It is, 100%. Well, I mean, and the kind of compliments to the point of, like, I, and I know not a lot of people would uh, take it as a serious or a compliment like I would, but, like, some of the words we're getting or whatever, it's like... <laughs> Alright, the big red the big red devil's curse. I won't talk about it. <laughs> Much like this movie set. Exactly it. <laughs> perfect perfect sharp left turn. Yeah. Um yeah. yeah, so the movie set I know it's like one of those movies there's a few of them out there, but um it's one of those movies that are said to be cursed. Um there were two people that died, right? Yeah, and um on top of that, one of the lead one of the lead actors, like, their son got hit by a fucking motorcycle. Yeah. Like, like starting in, and uh, there's people that were keeling off and dying. The whole set burned down, you know, like, halfway through or three-quarters through, like, the whole fucking set burned down, you know? People were physically injured as well. People were physically injured. The dropping, so it's like the whole set burned down, you know, leading to the mythos of, like, the exorcist curse. Yeah. You know? Did anything like that happen on uh, any of the sequels, uh, or...? Was it just this one? Not to my knowledge. It was, it was not to my knowledge. No, it was just this one. Okay. Which, I guess, how much bravery do you have after a while? <laughs> yeah. You need to keep going, you know. It's just like, people people are going to die. Just keep just keep filming. <laughs> Protect right, the 12-year-old. But uh, one of the things that gets me, like, back in, you know, with the 70s movies, you know, you sit down and you're watching a lot of people... Or you watch these movies with people, and it's and uh, when people's first viewing, you know they'll look at things. Okay, it's so like with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They're like he's chasing them down with the chainsaw. It's like you gotta understand this was was Massacre seventy two. Seventy four. Seventy four. Yeah. Seventy four. Okay, so it was like he's chasing them down with a chainsaw. It's like yeah, well this seventy four has ever seen that. Yeah. You know, and the same thing with The Exorcist. You watch it with people, and they're like, Ouija boards and heads <laughs> spinning around and floating bodies. Like, this is 72. This is the first time the world had seen this. Yeah. And it's very, this in general, just because of the religious aspect of it, is very a very touchy subject for a lot of people. Absolutely. There's and then people adding that to still the facts. won't go back. And, there's yeah. people Aren't that there, still like, won't. protests when it... Well, yeah, there's people fainting in the aisles and shit and, and all kinds of stuff. I also read that um, they had – Linda Blair had to have a bodyguard for like six months after this movie came out because of all the threats that she was getting for doing the movie. Yeah. yeah. Thinking that she was actually fucking possessed or whatever. It's, Poor it's, girl. Yeah, oh shit. She looked like but she had a blast the, making it though. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I guess that's kind of up for interpretation because a lot of the – techniques that William Friedkin used was old school like method so to get the reactions he wanted out of people he like put people through shit so yeah. like so like he so like the, the whole exorcism scene that set was built in a freezer and they had 20 air conditioners going at the same time to keep the temperature like stupid low so people had to actually wear parkas and and like winter clothes and stuff so when you can see the breath out their mouth that's not fake 
They should have just filmed it in Minnesota in the fall. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Yeah. You come up here in September. Yeah. <laughs> it'll snow for you. Yeah, it'll snow, but like, so like the breath on people's mouths, that's real. Well, also, actually... um, I read that when, like, one of the biggest scenes, because I feel like the biggest scenes of this movie were copied in Scary Movie. But like, oh, yeah. but like yeah. one of the biggest scenes um, where Reagan throws up the pea soup on the on the uh, on Jason Miller. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Sorry, but um, oh, that was supposed to hit him. That was supposed to hit his yes. body, and yep. they rigged it so that it hit his face. So that's an actual reaction because he was pissed that it like splashed all over his face. Yeah, his disgusted look. Yeah. Is, is genuine. And same and so with um, Father Marin, the actor who played him, like the disgust that's on his face, a lot of the time it was real because he wasn't expecting Reagan's lines to be so dirty. So you have this like 12 year old girl that's just yelling the, the harshest words that you can think of. You know? Absolutely. And, and uh, uh, Reagan would fire off flare guns on set and fire empty rounds that's for crazy. no reason, like when nobody was paying attention. To keep people on edge, and like when Reagan was laying in the bed during that exorcism scene, he 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 was splashing her with water mm-hmm. constantly, and so like so when it looks like her hair's like frozen to her head, it's because it is. Yeah, you know, this was this was hard movie making and hard times because everybody took this thing so viscerally serious. When they um, yanked, when when the the mom uh, got thrown by Reagan. Mm-hmm. She was yanked back so hard, and they didn't tell her when they were going to yank her, and she literally broke a bone. Holy yeah, I, can't, uh, I think it was her co- coccyx uh, is what she broke. Or, or something, I forget which bone. Yeah, and uh, uh, during probably one of the most touching scenes in the whole movie, spoiler alert, the movie's been out for over 40 years, you haven't <laughs> seen it yet. You know. It's your own fault. Yeah, right. So, um, but when Father Karras falls to his death down the steps... Mm-hmm. Uh, Father Dyer, they and they a lot of these guys are actual Jesuits, and so the 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 uh, uh, the actor that plays Father Dyer is an actual Jesuit priest, and so and same thing with uh, Tom Birmingham, that would be one of the older guys that when Karis earlier on in the movie when he goes, uh, talks when he when he tells him that uh, he's lost his faith, yeah, mm-hmm. that other actor is an actual Jesuit priest, and so. Um, uh, Father Dyer, in that scene with Karis when he's reading him his last rites, Friedkin asked, uh, uh, I'm blanking on it, uh, O'Malley, William, o- Bill, Bill O'Malley. Mm-hmm. Uh, Friedkin asked Bill O'Malley, he says, Do you trust me? And O'Malley says, Sure. And William Friedkin just slapped the dog shit out of him. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and then told him to go do his scene. So when he's actually crying, because it's fucking real, you know. And so, like the Catholic Church and the Jesuits. Um, Could you imagine, like being being like a fucking priest and just agreeing to do this movie, which is already going to be controversial because of the subject matter, and you just show up to set and you just get the shit slapped out of you? <laughs> yeah, no joke, right? Well, and um, uh, there was, and because of that specific scene, like when he slapped uh, Bill O'Malley, mm-hmm. like. There's a shitload, there was a shitload of, like, that riled up, like, the Jesuits and the consulting Catholic parish and everything else. Like, they were pissed about that. Like, that one specifically when he slapped them. Yeah. Like, that was a big one, which I suppose when you think about it, like, really seems pretty disrespectful. 
disrespectful. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Given like how, given how much the Catholic Church had opened up to you at that point, you know, uh, and then you just kind of slap the dog shit out of the You beat up a priest. <laughs> you know? but, so uh, before we get into like the the really diving into the movie, um, last week when we did Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we all talked about our first time watching the movie. So, let's do that with this movie. Sure, okay. absolutely. Um, so my first experience with The Exorcist as like a franchise, I guess, um, was it, it was later me? on. Well, yeah, it was later on. Um, when I was in like middle school, or it might have been like early high school. I don't remember exactly, but uh, it was when the beginning came out, the prequel that they had made. Right. And um. The timeline for these movies has always confused the shit out of me. You've explained it to me a little bit, John, with, like, the heretic, and then they made the third one, but then they have the beginning, but then they also have, like, Dominion, which is also supposed to be a prequel, so... Now there's a show? And all of them, other than Exorcist 3, are... I I guess... I I love horror so much, so it pains me to say anything bad about the genre, but, um... Exorcist, the, the, the Exorcist, and then Exorcist Three, which is really Exorcist Two. Yeah. Because Exorcist Three ignores the events of the Heretic completely, and Exorcist Three actually follows William Peter Blatty. Because there's a sequel to this that William Peter Blatty. Okay, so William Peter Blatty wrote the Exorcist the novel, and then he also wrote the screenplay. Actually, in the movie too, by the way. Uh, William Peter Blatty, he's one of the reporters in the very beginning of the movie that's talking to Burke Dennings. Mm-hmm. So he makes a quick little cameo or whatever. So that's a cool little fun fact. But, yeah. So, uh, um, so I saw the beginning, and I wasn't super into it. But I've I've expressed on this show before that when I was younger and I watched horror movies, I was one of those like, oh, if it has blood and gore in it, then it's good. Like one of those one of those people. Um, right. Yeah. So. I kind of, I, I have to watch it again because I haven't watched the beginning since then to like really Texas form an opinion. Yeah, to really form an opinion on it. But the first time I watched this movie was, um, Sierra and I were in high school and I bought it for like $5 on DVD because you can find this movie fairly cheap in stores. Yeah. But, um, we like really hyped ourselves up for it because there's people to this day and it's really funny, like... I don't want to say funny, but it's really interesting because there's people to this day that'll be refuse to watch this movie. Yeah, they'll watch like yeah. and every it, horror yeah. gory. And it it almost like it, it makes me really curious because there's movies that are way worse than this. Right. But this movie and it, it makes me think that maybe it's just because of the reaction that it got when it first came out and people have just let that legacy live on. I because think... well, hold on, because there's it's the same way my mom is absolutely terrified of Freddy Krueger. Absolutely terrified. She will have nightmares. She refuses to watch any nightmare on Elm Street movie. I have watched movies with her that are ten times scarier. Than Nightmare on Elm Street, and she's fine, but she will not go back and watch it. And it makes me wonder if it's, it has to do with, like I said, the legacy that the movie made when it first came out. Because right, there's yeah. people that are our age now that will post that they're watching some like really like screwed up movie, but then they'll be like, I refuse to watch The Exorcist. I won't watch it. Which 
I'm not discrediting The Exorcist at all. It has its moments where it's it's very genuinely scary, but I'm just saying, like, this pushed the boundary for 73, and the boundary has been pushed further since then. Yeah. But this movie has still had this taboo kind of, of I like will being... not watch this movie. I think... So... Go ahead. You're good. I think that um, there's a couple of reasons why this movie is held the scene that it is and i think one of them is is at the time there was catholic catholicism yeah. was like huge there's a lot of catholics and i think that this movie was like instantly taboo for them so it's like your grandma's telling you you can't watch that movie your mom's telling you, you can't watch that movie that's gonna be a really bad movie yeah like and they're making it they're you know like my mom was even like that with this movie oh don't watch that and she didn't like I watched well, she was my whole life. We we like to add to the the story of the first time we watched it. We watched it at Sierra's house. We were in high school, and Sierra's mom was just like, "Nope, absolutely not." Like, she, if I remember right, she was like pissed that we were gonna watch it at your house. Yeah, <laughs> that my mom has a really bad. My mom has like a really bad, huge issue with Ouija boards. Yeah. Huge issue with Ouija boards. So, like, right. if the word Ouija is, like, <laughs> right. near her, right. she gets really upset. And it's not, like, sure. angry. It's, like, it's like scared. My mom gets very scared yeah. by the word Ouija board. Sure. <laughs> but, um, so we watched... Sure. Which we, means we, she's watched this movie before. <laughs> so we bought this right. movie, and we watched it, and um, there's one scene in the movie that when we watched it, I have never cringed so bad in my life. Like... I remember. So uncomfortable. I had to, like, walk out of the fucking room because of this scene. And other than that, I feel like I was a little let down by it. But then looking back on it, I was like, you know, you know, there's this element of it that really makes it interesting, and then there's this element. And then as I got older and I started appreciating film for, you know, techniques or special effects or, like, story more importantly i feel like it really made me gain a better appreciation for the movie and that's with a lot of movies um absolutely but it it's just funny the way you look at something 10 years ago as opposed to now but um absolutely yeah the scene that made me cringe was the crucifix in the crucifix masturbation scene yes Yes. and i was just like nope Absolutely. Nope. <laughs> and then, like, it was like hours after we watched the movie, and we're just sitting in the living room, and I'm like, Sierra, they legit fucking showed that. <laughs> but Sierra's like falling asleep, and I'm like, they, she was stabbing herself, and Sierra's like, shut the fuck up, Dylan, go to sleep. I, I, and that brings me to the next thing. I saw I it, think, Dylan, I was there, go to sleep. <laughs> I think that's why this movie, I think that's the, another part to why this movie has so much taboo around it it's they did take a very young actress and put her yeah, in a very absolutely. adult yeah. Oh, yeah, situation and I, think, uh... and I think that that's extremely controversial even today for today's standards usually children in horror are generally safe even the things she says yeah it's very it's very adult and I, I think that that's a huge issue especially in the 70s people were not prepared to see a 12 year old on screen Say, I don't even say the words she says. Yeah. So, <laughs> I don't um, think that it was today. Like I, I think if I think if I think if it was released today to the visceral that it has, and I think you know when we talk about the poll that this 
movie hat. Now, I'm going to, okay, I'm going to, before we put too many people and too many people tune out, I really want to make sure that these things, that I get a couple of things out while I have you know, people's attention. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and I'm not going to cut off your story. I just did, I, I mean, uh, not to steal this, I'll. No, you're golden. Like, well, my story is done. This out. the first time you watched this year? No, I watched it when I was little. Okay. <laughs> Apparently right, my so, mom didn't know that. <laughs> Surprise. All right, so so uh, let me let me start by saying this and saying it very plainly. This is a story about the very thing that vexes all of mankind, and I think that's why this story has the pull that it does. It's the mystery of faith, and not just that, but the you know beyond that, the eternal battle of good and evil. I mean, I mean, it's in that way, it's beyond a horror story, mm-hmm. and it's it's about the purpose of life and the, and the nature of life after death, and the most important and grave matter of all humankind. It's it's the stuff that we've been warring over for fucking centuries. And it's the debate about whether or not it's real. Mm-hmm. And the difference is, is that when these people approached it, they took it serious. And the biggest difference is that this wasn't made by, this wasn't made by, Hollywood people looking to make a buck or they weren't really looking to push boundaries when they did it. They were just telling the story because when William Peter Blatty wrote the book, he, he, uh, the, the 1949 possession case he had heard about from one of his professors at Georgetown. Mm-hmm. And so he'd heard about the case and he talked to the priest about it and he did a bunch of research on it. And literally all he did was he wrote down a list of symptoms that typically accompany demonic possession cases and just started a book and just hoped that he wouldn't write himself into a corner and uh, went from there and did a shitload of research on demonic possession in general, the nature of it as it's interwoven into like how psychology views potential demonic possession, how the Catholic church handles demonic possession and whether or not they deem it as legitimate. And so there's so many nuances that are handled to, very efficient aplomb, you know, they're, they're taken very seriously. And so that's one of the things I always say is like, take the movie as seriously as you want the audience to take it. And I think that the reason why the exorcist has this pull is not because they were trying to necessarily freak out, freak the fuck out of audiences. They were just telling the story appropriately. And in so doing these things that are on screen, and I'll get into this a little bit when I go through some of the book, because the book has some of William Peter Blatty's research that's given to Father Karras in the book that it's not omitted, but it's kind of skipped over in the movie because there's not time for it. But, um, like, there is a large amount of research psychologically and theologically that goes into the nature of demonic possession. And I think because they didn't, like the crucifix masturbation scene wasn't put in there to shock the fuck out of people. It was put in there because it, because it, because it was a supposed symptom that was told to William Friedkin and William Peter Blatty by the aunt of the boy that was supposedly possessed. Right. So like, it's not so much that it's like, well, they made it up. It's like, well, not really. (laughs) Well, that's, I think that's what separates because this movie, we've talked about it before on past episodes, I think even with you, John, where this movie 
set the trend absolutely for exorcism movies. You can't deny that whatsoever. But there's so many exorcism movies right now that follow the same formula that this movie set up. But on top of that, you have movies now that throw things in for shock value. And it's so, it's so easy to look at this movie and say, oh, well, they just put that in there to shock people. They just put that in there to shock people without knowing, you know, that they actually did research to figure this stuff out. Yeah, they done um, red. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I do want to bring up something, um, not not to cut your, you off or anything, but you had oh, brought absolutely. up the, uh, the novel that William Peter Blatty wrote. And um, we had brought this up when we covered The Birds. But I, I think that this is a really interesting story, so I'm going to bring it up again. Um, Tippi Hedren, who played the main character in The Birds, she was very good friends with William Peter Blatty. Oh, and, yeah, uh, absolutely. She yep. He gave her the copy of The Exorcist once he had finished yep. it in 1971. Yep. And, you know, it wasn't published. It wasn't known at the time. And yep. she read it. She woke her husband up, who was an agent, and... Um, said you need to represent him in publishing this novel it's going to blow up so when right. they made the movie he was drunk as hell when he gave her that manuscript too like <laughs> because uh, it, now i've watched countless interviews i i uh it'll come as no shock or no secret like this is my favorite movie of all time so i'm going to start off by perhaps by saying all of that so i've watched tons and tons and tons of shit on it and i've studied it ad nauseum yeah and watched a lot of interviews with peter Blatt, and he talked about how like when he showed up and gave her the manuscript he's like he's like i was about 10 or 12 whiskeys deep and i showed up to her door and i was like i she, she opened up the door and i was like take this read it it's gonna make you a star yeah. <laughs> and then he just walked away yeah. <laughs> so but he um marshall uh tippy hedrum's um husband at the time he was put on he's an exec executive producer for the movie and yep they agreed to give him 15% of the profits that the movie made. Well, they weren't expecting this movie to blow up the way that it did. So when the time came, Blatty refused to give Marshall his cut of the money because he right. said that they never made a written contract saying that, you know, they were going to agree to that term. So right. they ended up going through a legal battle for years. And yeah. um, the stress of the legal battle ended up, resulting in them getting divorced because you know it's a lot to handle they didn't have money they were you know desperate and i there are times where you can say oh well they're just suing somebody because they're desperate for money but this started before they were desperate for money this was right just a, a several year long thing and um it got to the I'm... point where uh at the end of the story that of as much as i had read was blatty ran into tippy hedron at a party and like said hi to her and she completely ignored him and walked away she's like absolutely not i have no interest in talking to you so right yeah no it doesn't shock me anything everything gets messy when fucking money is involved oh yeah absolutely you know and um you know i won't uh i won't sit here and try to paint Blatty as somebody that he's not yeah. you know and so um like i won't sit here and try to paint Blatty as somebody that he's not you know, but I mean, anybody that you got to watch an interview with him, you realize he's a very proud man, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, it's so. hard with, with any artist really, because you have these people that they make good content and good art, but they can be a dick and you have 
kind of a divide because there's people that can separate somebody's personality for the art that they make and say, okay, well, you know, he's an asshole, but he makes good content, so I'm just going to, you know, enjoy his Deal content. Deal with it, yeah. Yeah, and then you have people that are like, I refuse to support somebody that acts that way. So right. I, I can kind of exactly. see both sides of the story, but, I mean, I... I'm not going to say Blatty's an amazing person, but I will say, yes, he makes good, you know, he made it a game-changing story, and, you know, he changed well, the film. Well, this, so. this was a story that comes along, like, like I said, like, the thing we need to keep into perspective here was that this came out nearly 30 fucking years before the rest of these Possession movies blew up. Exactly. You know, so, like, in the 70s, you had Possessed Children movies, because you had The Omen... You had The Exorcist, you had Rosemary's Baby, you know, and it didn't get big again, because that's the way things work in horror, everything's kind of cyclical, you know, and so, like, when things have been old for long enough, then they can be new again, we're going through that with zombies, it was vampires before that, and then, yeah. par you know, we went through with Paranormal now, um, and that's the thing, it's like this, it, it, I mean, Game Changer, I, I mean is a perfect descriptor of it, because it's like, this is an idea, that, this is a holy shit idea, it's almost like the Facebook story that everybody talks about. The whole big uh, legal battle between Zuckerberg and the Winklevoss twins. You know, it's, nobody expects it to make a gajillion dollars. And then everybody's looking at that chunk of cash, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it, it goes, I mean, to tie it into that, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, he's a piece of shit, but everybody uses Facebook, you know? Absolutely. You know? <laughs> so and it's so, a matter of how much are you going to let slide to enjoy something that somebody's putting out, you know? Right. And as far as where I kind of come down on it, and I had written an article about this for a metal podcast that I'm on, that I, that I blogged for, yeah. about uh, Tim Lambesis, who's the former lead singer for As LA Dying. He had gone to jail for attempted, he hired a hitman to murder his wife. Mm -hmm. It's like, now he's out of jail, he's got his band back, they're going to make a gajillion dollars again and everything else. And I was like, I... You know what? Everybody's got to make up their own mind how they feel about it, and I totally respect that. But, yeah. but, but you got to draw your own line somewhere. And I'm like, okay, so the question was in the article, where do you draw the line? And that's why it's applicable to this conversation. Exactly. Is it's like, where, where do you draw the line? And I think it's the same deal as like Elvis. Everybody loves Elvis, but Elvis was a piece of shit. Yeah. He was. And I love Elvis. But I think the difference is, in today's day and age, the, the glass between artists and content is thinner than it ever has been. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it's such a relevant issue today. Back in the day, like with Elvis and a lot of those guys, it's like, okay, you could separate Elvis from his personal life because Elvis wasn't singing about his personal life. Well, not only that, but you didn't have the yeah. internet that was exposing Elvis to right. everybody. You know? And even, even if it was the same kind of deal today, it's like, if you're not singing about your personal life, I don't care. I yeah. mean, unless you're like fucking kids or something, you know? <laughs> But I mean, uh, you know, if you're just kind of an asshole, but you're not singing songs about it, I, you know, whatever. I realize that you're on the clock when you're creating your stuff, so go for it, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, and so it comes down to like, how much of yourself are you putting in your work? Yeah. And and then it becomes relevant because it's like, well, why do you care? Well, because he's directly putting himself into the work, and so like by supporting the work, you're supporting the person, and then, like it's like, I think that's kind of the issue for me and uh with this one uh with blatty whether or not blatty is an asshole you know 
I'm not going to speak for him. I think everybody can find that out on their own accord. But I do think that the story at its core is about more than Blatty. It's about more than it's about more than everybody that was involved. I think this is an important story. Yeah. And I could, I mean, not that I don't care. It's not that. It's not that I don't care about who makes the money or whatever else. But it's kind of like I don't care about who makes the money. The story is incredible. You guys, it's one of those deals where it's like. You guys sort all that out amongst yourselves. I don't give a shit. You know? I just like the. St- I'm here for the story. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. I don't necessarily support or non-support any of you. You guys, whatever. You pack John, of wolves. John loves the story so much that the very first time we watched the movie together, he made us watch it like five times in a row on the same night. <laughs> yep, yeah. Nope. Well, That's when I go, Dylan. I'm going to sleep. <laughs> right. Well, like, I, I tried, but he kept poking me awake, so there was no sleep. It's like, you're going to miss it, you're going to miss it. We just watched this four times, John. Right. <laughs> just, like, let, let me rewind it, let me rewind it. You were asleep, let me rewind it. Like, but like, well, it goes back to like the first time I saw this movie. So, like, I had mentioned this on the podcast, and it's, it's actually kind of a sentimental moment for me on the podcast here, because almost a year ago to the day was the very first time I'd met you guys mm-hmm. and been on an, an, an artist spotlight. And uh, we talked about The Exorcist then, and I went through this period in my life where, like, I got into horror really young, and then I went through some ugly shit. Like, my parents left, and I was on my own, and I did what all young kids do with no parents. I did a lot of fucking drugs and a lot of bad shit. And then when my life had sort of settled out, I got to basically rediscover all these horror things as an adult that I didn't have a chance to do when I was a kid. And The Exorcist, when I was growing up, because before everything went haywire in my life, we were a very religious family. Yeah, and so uh, the Exorcist was like no bueno. I remember talking to Paul about this last night because I was talking to him, and Paul's my brother. And, uh, we, you know, he's the one that really got me into horror when I was a kid. But our thing was always Halloween and '80s slashers mm-hmm. was always our thing when we were kids. Cause like like Dylan was saying, it's like the more blood, the better, you know. Yeah, exactly. But but even uh, as kids, it was like the Exorcist was like a no no, you know. <laughs> It was like, no, 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 that movie is like, we didn't know what it was about it, we just knew that it was too fucking real, and in that way, it's almost like, you kind of have to be mentally ready for The Exorcist, I think, to really understand what it's doing, you know? It's a conversation I've had with Sierra, because like, um, people bring up all the time, like, oh, you guys like horror movies, you better not let your kid watch horror movies, and I mean, I've talked to Sierra too, like, there's certain things that I think it's okay for a kid to watch, like, you know... Gremlins, Beetlejuice, the the intro stuff. Well, there's but, levels, you know, as they grow older. Exactly. exactly. But my thing, too... Is... And, and if you hear it, Aubrey, say it again. You say Beetlejuice, sweetheart? Oh, yeah. no, 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 no! <laughs> You're watching right. magic you don't understand. You can't say it three times! You can't say it three times! Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice! Podcast is closed. She watches the cartoon one. Yeah. Oh, I anyway, love that. Absolutely, right? Right. But, um, and so the goosebumps, the goosebumps one is really big in our household. Uh, yeah. The old school goosebumps. Well, yeah, that's the thing. So, Yay! I mean, growing up, my parents never let me watch like horror movies, and my parents and, let me watch all of them. Yeah. <laughs> so there's really two sides to it because Sierra still appreciates horror, but to me, what really made it interesting and like fun to watch horror movies when I was like in middle school and high school was it was made such a taboo thing. Like my parents were going, you know, don't watch that, you're going to be terrified. So when it came time when I was at my friend's house, he's like, "Hey, you want to watch this movie?" I'm like, "Fuck, I can't Ooh, watch that. I'm going to be yeah, terrified." Yeah. Yeah. And it and it really added to the hype and it made you 
it made it fun. It made it more fun to watch it because okay. it's this thing that you're like, okay. you weren't supposed to have it. Exactly. Yeah, but that's the thing, though, is that at my experience, what I have is, like, you know how you have memories of watching Home Alone every year with your dad? <laughs> yes. I have those cozy, warm, fond memories of watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> exactly. and, I, and I have those same ones with Paul, like my brother. Like, it's like our thing was Halloween. We'd rent that fucking thing over and over yeah. and over. We'd watch that fucking movie, you know. And it was and Halloween one, two, four. The ones with Michael Myers. So it's like we're we always skip three. The, no <laughs> season of the witch for us. We're 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 pretty pumped for for the for the release of the oh, new we one. Are you know? too. And so like and so like uh, and out in Fargo on the big screen they do the horror nights every year. So they run the old school movies. So they're actually running the '78 Halloween and a midnight showing right before they. Did open you tell John about awesome. the drive-ins? Uh, we fucked up when we were in New York. Um, I ended up working the whole time we were up, but when we were just evacuated for the storm, um, they were doing at the drive-ins The Exorcist. The Exorcist. Oh, dude, that was so awesome. Well, the thing that, like, yeah, we could have... Imagine seeing that, that, that crucifix scene on the big screen. <laughs> but the thing... And I saw it last year, because, like, they always do The Exorcist is the last one for the Horror Nights in Fargo. Mm-hmm. So, like, I went to The Shining last night, and so uh, before we go to Crypticon this year, the whole bunch of us, me, Paul, Roy, Becca, the whole group, were watching a midnight showing of The Exorcist in Fargo before we head down to Minneapolis to, like, start the whole weekend off right to the horror convention because skeleton, we're having a, booth, a Skeleton Always Media booth. We're doing our first convention this year, you know? That's so, so awesome! Right? So we're going to have posters, books, shirts, the whole thing to sell. And so, like, to kick it off right, we're doing The Exorcist, and I did that last year. And that crucifix masturbation scene, that same one, like when the movie starts, you have a lot of these younger kids and it's like, you can tell they've never seen it. And so like, there's a lot of giggles. There's a lot of, you know, laugh at the funny old people's hairdos, you know? And then like, as it starts getting more and more serious, you know, and, and really starting to get really, really heavy. You know, it's, uh, he starts out like, "Let Jesus fuck you." And there was yeah. these two teenage girls that stood up right before, right in front of me and Paul. And as they were walking out, they just said, "Nope," <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't here. come back. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, if I paid, no, actually, that's not true. I walked out of movies before. I was gonna say, if I paid for, it, I'm staying. But yeah, there's one movie that we walked out of, and that was Drag Me to Hell. We, oh, okay. <laughs> we were right. just like, "Nope." Nope, not doing it. Then it wasn't because we were scared yeah, or anything. It was, just, it was because it, it was yeah. silly. It was just funny. Yeah, we're just like, okay, this isn't what we wanted. So, but I've um, been duped. Yeah. So, um, I think it was around the time when the goats started talking. We were like, okay, we're done now. <laughs> All right, we're good. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, um, cool goat. Bye. We're like forty-five minutes into the episode. We haven't started talking about the movie yet. Well, we have, right. but not like the talking about the movie so we've kind of um, we've kind of hinted around the uh, hinted around it a little yeah. bit yeah so we've um, talked about the crucifixion masturbation scene yes right we we've, we've hit on that <laughs> we've, um, we've, a few times it's actually we've much hit more on that part. which is actually <laughs> uh, believe it or not is a little bit more wrenching even in the book because oh, now out, out of the small little excerpts that i'm going to do from, well if you guys will permit me i've got a couple of different little uh, cool tie-ins to the novel to go back and forth to kind of show uh, that the book really is beautiful, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, I've got a couple, and I've, and like I said, they're, they're short excerpts that kind of give a lot of context and perspective, but I will not be reading that scene. 
Yeah, okay. Um, but but if, but if you guys will permit me, I mean, there's there's a couple different things that I can that I think are really cool to mention. But in the book, that scene in in the movie, she's just kind of stabbing herself. Yeah. And in the book, it's it's exactly as descriptive. It's a crucifix masturbation scene. Yeah. yeah. And. And, and like as she's bleeding all over the place and everything else, so it, it's uh, it's pretty wrenching. Yeah, I believe it. Books, <laughs> it well, the thing with work. books is it, it leaves more to the imagination too. Where well, and I was talking to a buddy of mine, and I've got uh, my my second book was called Lavender Blue, and it um, was actually a possession story. I'll throw this out. It's a, I wanted to do a possession story for that one, and I and I wanted to do something that uh, that. I wanted to go outside of Christianic mythos for a possession mm-hmm. story. And so I had storyboarded that whole thing with my buddy Craig at work. And uh, to this day, I think that remains uh, that book. I have trouble getting through. I mean, and I'm kind of getting known for being having very, very intense horror. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Craig, even though he helped me storyboard it, he refuses to read the book. <laughs> not because... Not well, he's had, the, he's had the the uh, preview, and he's like, yeah, I'm not going past the preview. <laughs> yeah, right. He's like, he's like, I know what's in that book. I'm not fucking reading it. And he's like, it's just <laughs> different in a book. He's like, because you can't run from the book. You can't... Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's like, you can't fast forward. Exactly. You know? And you can't, you can't your stop brain. your mind from, from making it even worse. Exactly. And if the author does his job, you're inside the room. Yep. You know, and even inside the character, you know, as these things are happening. And so the re- one of the reviews that I'd gotten for that, for Lavender Blue, was uh, from from a critical author. And I split reviews into fan reviews and critical reviews. And so the author reviews that, that I receive, I consider critical reviews because they're, they're looking for flaws. Yeah. And uh, so Perry is really meticulous. And he's fantastic. He's a, he's a theologian and he's a... He, just a phenomenal, phenomenal guy. So if there's flaws, Perry's going to find it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so Perry, had, and you can go find the review for it. It's on Amazon and, and on Goodreads for Lavender Blue. He had said, uh, he goes, when reading Lavender Blue, it's hard not to draw comparisons between uh, Peter Bodies, The Exorcist, and Spielberg's Poltergeist. But let's be clear, this book is better and more intense. And I was like, I don't know if I can accept that. Yeah. <laughs> like, because I'm like when i said that i'm a fan of the exorcist i have the exorcist in my skin i have like great big exorcist tattoos like i'm such a huge fan of it i was like i wrote the i wrote the fucking thing that, that lavender blue was like i wrote the book and i don't know if i'm comfortable accepting that kind of phrase yeah that's like you're, much, you're very nice but no <laughs> but he stands by and i even i talked to him about it after he posted the review and he's like he's like i wouldn't have put it in there if i didn't mean it i know what i said you know yeah. And so I was like, I'll leave it at that, I guess. <laughs> so it was a cheap little plug. plug. Yeah. Yeah. You can go check that one out. Anyway. So uh, we'll, we'll dive into the movie. Um, so it starts out with Father Marin, and he's in the Middle East doing some digging. Yeah, he's in he's in northern Iraq. He's in Mosul, Iraq. And that's I was going to say Iraq, but I didn't want to sound like an asshole because if it was just the Middle East and I was assuming it was Iraq, you know. Right. <laughs> Right. Well, and that's actually the prologue of the book. Yeah. And so what's important about that, and uh, they actually shot that in Iraq. And so they're on location in Mosul. <laughs> that, in, that's in their $12 million dollar budget. <laughs> yeah, no shit. And so, like, they, they had, and at the time, 
the United States had no diplomatic relationships with Iraq at all. Yeah. And so William Friedkin had to appeal. Now, Saddam Hussein was not uh, the political leader, but the party that he became the leader for was in power. And uh, he had to appeal to them to shoot there. And they said yes. It's just like, listen, a lot of American people are going to die in this movie. And they're like, fucking sold. Fucking (laughs) hell, yeah. So, like, it was under... It was under a couple of conditions that they were able to shoot there. Number one was that they use Iraqi people mm-hmm. in the shoot. And so they and, and they were to teach the Iraqi people how the processes of making movies. So, like, they had to teach them how to use cameras. They had to teach them how to edit, how to run lights, how to do all that. There's the other and, $12 million. <laughs> right. And then, the, and then condition number two was that they had to teach the Iraqi people how to make movie blood or how to make fake blood, <laughs> which is a bit unsettling when you, when you think about it. But those were the two conditions. And so, of course, they said yes. And then it was a suggestion that they not have an American crew. And so he had to take a British, a, a British film crew there to, to teach the Iraqi people how to run the set. And so all of that is shot by Iraqi, by Iraqi citizenry. See, that's and cool, so that, like it, it, it's cool that they were able to do that. Absolutely, and, and Friedkin in the commentary for the 40th anniversary edition, which I would highly recommend to anybody to pick up, is uh, uh, William Friedkin mentions that uh, despite the kind of ominous leadership, he spoke very highly of the Iraqi citizenry. He said they were very polite, very fantastic people that oh, yeah, just absolutely have the unfortunate the unfortunate burden of where they're born. Yeah, I mean, that's any war-driven, that's any war-driven country, I mean. Yep, absolutely, and so one of the cool things about it was, like, he'd say that by, like, 10.30 in the morning, it'd be 130 degrees, and so they would shoot for, like, three hours in the morning, they would break at 10.30, and then they had to wait again until, like, 7 o'clock at night, when it was cool enough to actually be outside. Now, did, um, did they pay the Iraqi film crew, like, as if they would have paid their film crew or was it kind of just uh they'll work for free if you teach them that i'm not sure i haven't i haven't been able to find out a dollars and cents figure that would be interesting to know though like if they yeah. paid them the same or not but that dig that Marin is on in the beginning is an actual archaeological dig they didn't that's stage cool. that so that's an actual dig that they're doing that they were allowed to film and well, so I mean, it's it's good too because you watch the beginning of this film, and I, I wouldn't have known that fact if you didn't tell me. So they obviously did a great job of filming it because it felt like it, – it, it all feels like the same movie. It's not like when you watch a movie – like we had talked before we started recording about the Justice League movie. How you can tell what parts Zack Snyder did and what parts Joss Whedon added in. Yep, absolutely. It's not, it's not like a – a, to- a different tone whatsoever. It feels like the same movie. So even even to, when kudos to oh, that amateur f- film crew that were able to you know make this film. Absolutely, and uh, and on top of that, like even when they cross cut back to Georgetown, it doesn't feel like you said it doesn't feel out of place at all. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and uh, and the, the actors that they use to the lady in the droshki, uh-huh. the lady in the droshki. That's the cart that almost runs over Marin. Mm-hmm. Like they had told her that they're, they're shooting a movie, you know, they're shooting a movie. So basically all you have to do is write in this trashy 
and they had to do the take like six times to get it right. And so the, there was something broke down in like translation or whatever. So that poor lady in that drajki is like in the scene, she's like fearing for her life because she doesn't <laughs> know why it keeps turning around and almost running over this guy like each and every single time. And she was 109 years old. The lady in the drajki was 109 years old. And so like, and so, uh, one of the cool things too, when he's at the Iraqi curator, um, you see all these these uh, severed heads of statues mm-hmm. that are in the, the the curator, and and so the dig that they were actually working on. And now a lot of the vocab words are going to escape me, but years and years back there was uh, some there, there was settlement that had city. been there was a city that had been overtaken by another group of people, and what they had done was come in and literally beheaded 109,000 citizens. Jesus. And then they and all of their statues that the first civilization had erected, they beheaded all those statues too. So those beheaded statues, and that's all real. That's that's all what they're digging up. Mm-hmm. That the actual archaeological dig at the beginning of the movie. So like when you look at the curator, there's all those severed heads from the statues. Those are all real. Those are all like thousands of year old statue heads that they had dug out of the ground. You know. So like in terms of often, like I said, I think everything in this movie lends itself i mean we okay so i'm not going to break down every single scene to that degree okay but i'm just saying like it stands to the great testament of like whether who was a dick or who wasn't a dick you know yeah well it's, it's, it's interesting to bring up too like i'm glad you brought that point up because nowadays they did their homework nowadays they would you know cgi an iraqi background and yep, that's exactly. that's that's the extent that they would go to, <laughs> or just shooting in the Mojave Desert. Exactly. You know? So yep. it it is interesting that it you know that they went to that extent. Now, um, the next scene it goes to Reagan McNeil and her mom Chris McNeil in Georgetown, or does it cut to? Does it show them first, or does it show? Um, I fucking I'm terrible with names. Well, no, it, it cross-cuts to Chris McNeil and Georgetown showing over a script mm-hmm. that he's been given. And so that's when you first hear the first noises in the, the attic, the yeah. wrestling in the attic. And then, and then it, it shows the um, – does it show the Ouija board right away? I just watched this last night. I should know these things. <laughs> no, the Ouija, the Ouija board is a couple minutes later. You, you get the first couple of noises in the attic, and she talks to her housekeeper. Mm-hmm. And she's like, Carl, you're going to need to go out and get rat traps. we got rats in the attic. And uh, the housekeeper says, "He goes, no, ma'am, no, there are no rats, no none." And he just knows it for a fact. I know. mean, he's not wrong, so <laughs> he, he was, you know, in the end, he was right. Yeah. You know? and, that's uh, the moral and, of the story. Yeah. There's no rats. Nev- never doubt a Swiss. You know, like that's <laughs> that's the moral of the story. And so he says, "No, ma'am, no rats." And it's like two in the morning, and uh, he's like, "He's like, he's like, well." He's like, I was just up there. Their attic is clean. There's no rats. Like, well, then we've got tidy rats. And we just buy the traps and quit arguing. He says, all right, I go now. It's like two in the morning. <laughs> like, all right. And it's like, all right, I'm going to go get the traps now. They're fine. You know? <laughs> and then a funny thing that's in the book, it's not in the movie. They, 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 uh, Chris gets so fed up with Carl's insistence that there's no rats. She goes and gets one of Reagan's like stuffed Mickey Mouse balls. Mm-hmm. And then snaps it in a rat trap, and then uh, the next morning she's like, "Carl, I heard one of the one of the traps snap shut last night. Will you go up and check?" And Carl, emotionless and stolid, like pissed, you know, like pissed, like somebody stubborn would be, you know, 
He goes up there to go check the trap, and then he, as Chris is passing him in the hallway, he says, did you find anything up there? And he's got the Mickey Mouse, and he goes, someone is funny. Are you sure it was Chris? <laughs> I thought it was just Reagan that did that. No, it's Chris that does it in the book. Oh, and Chris does it specifically to get at Carl, because Carl didn't think there were rats in the attic. It's mm-hmm. like to piss him off. She snaps a, a mouse, a stuffed mouse in the fucking trap. Someone is funny. It's like we wanted to add that scene in, but we couldn't get the rice from Disney, so <laughs> skip that one. <laughs> but um, yeah, so you kind of get this uh, this back and forth. It goes back and forth between two stories. Uh, the first is Chris McNeil and her daughter Reagan, and um, Chris is a movie actress, and it kind of shows their life. Um, I mean, you get a little hint of it. I'm sure it, it addresses it a lot more in the book, but. Um, like when Reagan has the magazine where they're on the cover of it and they're like, oh, well, you know, I get shy. I don't talk, whatever. Uh, but then it goes to another story with um, who's the the main priest in the movie? The one that Father Karras. Father Damien yeah. Karras. Karras. I, I wanted to say Karras, but then I'm thinking Marin and I know Marin's the older one. And I was like, well, yep. they wouldn't make those names too close together. OK, Karras. Um, yep. Karras, who is battling with his loss of faith his mother passed away and he blames himself because he wasn't there with her to take care of her because to my understanding she wasn't doing well and he was kind of like her caretaker right absolutely and um you get these you get these kind of um it's, it's kind of interesting how they do it he's definitely a mama's boy too <laughs> it's kind I of interesting how they do it because <laughs> he starts to see things um like when he's outside and he sees his mother like in the street and i feel like as that progresses so does the story with reagan like the exorcist the the possession yeah right and uh and what it calls into question too um is what comes into play much much later on and what needs to be stated here is at the end of that prologue um that statue that Marin pulls out of the dirt the demon head mm-hmm. that's the demon head of Pazuzu yep. and that's the demon can you say the that... demon's name one more time Pazuzu <laughs> that's the greatest demon name ever right and so his, he's a Babylonian demon uh, Assyrian he's, a, he's a, in, in, in traditional lore he's Assyrian and he's, uh, his dominion is sickness and disease and so basically he lords over all of humanic degradation so like as you wither away in plague and sickness and disease you know uh, all of that uh, is under the dominion of Pazuzu and the reason why that's important that they don't quite mention in the movie that I think really sets it off is like when he cut when he's when Marin is uh, finding his way back to the desert he sees the dogs snarling at each other he sees the wind pick up and its source is southwest and so he sees that big statue at the very end, and that's a full-sized statue of the demon Pazuzu. And so I'm going to share this really quick. It's like a two-paragraph thing from the end of the prologue in the very beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he says, that, The man in khaki prowled the ruins, the temple of Nabu, the temple of Ishtar. He sifted vibrations. At the palace of Ashurbanipal, he stopped and looked up at a limestone statue hulking in situ. Ragged wings and taloned feet, a bulbous, jutting, stubby penis, and a mouth stretched taut and feral grin, the demon Pazuzu. Abruptly, the man in khaki sagged. He bowed his head. He knew. 
It was coming. He stared at the dust and the quickening shadows. The orb of sun was beginning to slip beneath the rim of the world, and he could hear the dim yappings of savage dog packs prowling the fringes of the city. He rolled his shirt sleeves down and buttoned them as a shivering breeze sprang up. Its source was southwest. He hastened toward Mosul and his train, his heart encased in the icy conviction that soon he would be hunted by an ancient enemy whose face he had never seen, but he knew his name. And the reason why that's important is because in the movie, when they and it doesn't give anything away to know this now, but in the movie, when they talk about bringing Marin in as the exorcist later on, when he says, oh, he's had experience. I didn't know that. Well, a couple of years ago, he, gave, he had an exorcism in Africa. Heard it lasted for months. Yeah, damn near yeah. killed him. And uh, heard it lasted for months. It damn near killed him. And so uh, uh, when it says here, it's like he would soon be haunted again by an ancient enemy whose face he'd never seen, but he knew his name. So Pazuzu has come back to possess Reagan to call Marin forth. So he didn't know. So he that, could so he could exercise. do battle with Marin again, and this time, and in the book, in the end of the book, when Marin first goes in and sees the demon and comes back out, Chris asks Sharon, she says, what happened? He goes, he walked in and he looked at Reagan, and Reagan simply looked back at him and said, this time you're going to lose. And then, and then Marin turned around and walked out and wanted to start the exorcism. So when Marin comes forth, it's like doing, it's, it's almost like a dark superhero story. Like, yeah. He's, he's like doing battle with this demon who he exercised out of the boy in Africa and years 10 years prior and it almost killed him and that's why he has a heart condition now. Now that so, story with the the exorcism that Marin did in Africa, that was the plot line for the beginning, right? Yes. See, I remember some things. Yep, and so <laughs> I think that that gives the whole thing a huge sense of closure for why the demon is so insistent, why he's mentioning Marin's name. Mm-hmm. You know, and why he wants to bring it forth. And he's actually rigging the game as well because Marin's are now going to Karis. Karis' crisis of faith becomes a huge issue because, like the psychologists tell you, uh, seeking an autosuggestive cure through the power of exorcism because it's the victim's belief in the possession that brings the possession forth. And so that same belief in exorcism can make it disappear. And so you're in this interplay between psychology and theology, which I'm, I have such a respect for this story that it's written by Catholics as an apostolic testament to the power of their faith. And that's true. That needs to be stated. What you take from it is up to you, the viewer, but that's why they wrote it. And, and this you know? is one of the few movies where I feel like it had a beautiful marriage of faith and science, because I mean, there's a lot of movies out there where it will downplay either the religious aspect of it or the science like downplay it hard like yeah what what, whichever side they're they're poo-pooing look ridiculous right and in this one i love the way you phrase that (laughs) well you you get it too i mean i i agree with you and it one of my i mean i i love the way that this movie goes through with all the plot points but i would have liked because to me, when I watch it, it's very obvious from the beginning that there is an actual possession going on. I would have liked it if you kind of don't know what's going on until the well, end. And well, I, uh, this was before the big M. Night Shyamalan plot I, twist. I know, but, but I mean, well, and, and, for example, well, for example, when Karis um, comes to visit and he brings up, you know, did you know that my mother passed away? And she says yes. And he says, well, does Reagan know that she passed away? And she said no. 
well, that could have been something so much because it could have been like, well, maybe she overheard, or maybe. And the book dives into that at, at length. Like, like the fact that um, Reagan overhears. Um... Well, don't bring too much up. Don't bring too much of it up yet because I have some of those sections in the book outlined of Karis's research. Okay, I, I'm just. That's one it. of. It's from the movie. From the movie. <laughs> she hears her mom cursing in the other room on the phone, cursing her dad out. Yeah. And so her cursing at the doctor's office, well, she heard all those words from her mom. Right. So and it's, so, it's and not what she hasn't ever heard and, before. And, right. and, and with the, the biggest... holy water, like when he's splashing the water on her and she's like, it burns, it burns. And he's just like, it was just tap water. It, like right. I would have loved if it, like, if it made it subtle to where you don't know if it's a possession or if it's just, you know, a psychological thing. And but I book, feel like in the movie, and the it's, in the movie, I mean, right from the beginning where she first says something's going on, you see her bed shaking like crazy and stuff, and you're like, okay, well, this is this is a possession, obviously. I like well, the part where the doctor tries to be like, no, she was just convulsing, and it's like, she wasn't shaking, it was well, the bed, you dumbass! Well, let, let, me, let, let, me, let me get this out, okay? I'll let you get it out. Because this this is important. The reason why, uh, like I have, okay, so I I have my master's degree in forensic psychology, and so the reason why so many, and and I get this a lot from people that see this movie, and it's like one of the things that I can't ever get behind is like how people don't believe that she's possessed. It's like Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily that they're not willing to believe it. All of these things are intertwined into the story. You just have to know where to look. And maybe that's the one fault of the movie is that it's not as plain as it needs to be mm-hmm. about some of those things. But the book is. And uh, the reason why that these things seem far-fetched, and I have some of these sections outlined as far as the research, what makes scientific men so skeptical, myself included, is because there's... Uh, Paranormal psychokinetic phenomenon are widely recognized by the science by the sciences as being entirely factual, but they don't see it as anything paranormal and or possible. Well, no, they see it. It's pot- there's there's tons of witnesses. There's all kinds of case study and research, and there's doctors present at all of these things that witness it happening. They've like there's and I like I said I have case studies lined out in the, in the book here that they're not real long passages, but they'll give you a flavor for like. And they're, and they're directly referenced and sourced. So you can look these studies up and read them for yourself. And so um, the reason why, because I think we're all trying to explain the same stuff. We're just speaking in a different language. So like what we would think of as possession, psychiatrists and psychologists see as schizophrenia and uh, dissociative identity disorder and as complete fracturing of the psychokinetic state. And so the reason why, the reason why is like, well, in, in one of the scenes that's not in the movie, she's talking to her, to her, to one of her doctors, and she says, she says, well, the bed was shaking. It was entirely shaking, you know. And so she told me her bed was shaking, and Chris thinks she's just lying about it. And the mm-hmm. doctor says, well, do you know that it wasn't? And she goes, no, no, she just said it was shaking. He goes, well, I'm not saying that, she, like, I'm not saying it wasn't shaking, but, like, abnormal strength is very common in signs of pathology it's no different to medical personnel than say tons of stories that are well documented of mothers lifting cars off their children you know or other strange verifiable paranormal events 
they see these things as the continual limitless power of the human mind. And so, uh, like I said, the book delves into these things at length. And so, like I said, with a two and a half hour movie, you've only got time for so much, you know, and maybe that's one of the only issues, which is why I encourage people to read the book as well, you know, because the book marries with it so fantastically and so beautifully. And because of a lot of, I'll, I'll share one specific case that always sticks out to me that I had read in one of my abnormal psychology classes when I was in grad school. <clears throat> okay. So. Old lady in a mental ward, completely catatonic. All she does is stare out the window day after day after day after day. She does the same thing for 25 years. Every single day, just stares out of a window, right? And one day, her doctors come in, and she literally sticks her fingers in her mouth and starts biting them off. Oh. She gets she gets through three fingers before anybody stops her. She never screams. She never makes one sound. And when they stop her, they bandage her up, and then she goes right back to staring out the window again. And she did that until she died. And so, what do you call it? You know, um, do you say that it's demons or spirits? Or do you say that it's a complete fracturing of the mind? And, and this, and maybe this might be a good, maybe this might be a good place to dive into some of these case study points. I mean, do you, do you guys want to go there now? Like, as far as some of these, these, uh, like instances in the book that I can read to you from some of these classical cases and studies on possession and whatnot. Yeah, go for yeah. it, dude. Okay, so all right, let me turn to uh, page 167 here. Now these are, are more or less going to be just sort of um, uh, pieces of research that you're given in the text that are cited and are that are cited um, and utilized for the entire case. Of exorcism. So this is a scene that um, this is an initial scene where Karras is speaking to Lieutenant Kinderman, and he's explaining some of these more abnormal things surrounding uh, the supposed presence of witchcraft in the Washington D.C. area and everything else. So Karras says, "Well, uh, I think this might interest you as a policeman." His scholarly interest aroused and stirring. The Jesuit's manner had grown quietly animated. The records of the Paris police still carry the case of a couple of monks from a nearby monastery. Let's see. He scratched the back of his head as he tried to recall. Yeah, maybe the one at Crepe, he said at last. The priest shrugged. Well, whichever. Some town close by. At any rate, the monks came in to an inn and got belligerent about wanting a bed for three. The two of them in a life-size statue of the Blessed Virgin Mother Mary that they carried in with them. And so he says, oh, that's shocking, great Doug Kinderman. He says, no kidding, but it's a fair indication that what you've been reading is based on fact. Well, the sex, maybe so, this I can see, you know, the, but the story altogether, you know, so like they're, they're, in, they're investigating all of this as if it, it's like the desecrations that they're uh, investigating as far as the presence of supposed witches cults in the Washington, D.C. area. And so again, on, one, on page 183, uh, Karras is doing more research, and he says, uh, the title of the chapter was States of Possession, and this is a witchcraft book that's entirely omitted from the movie, which is very important in the novel, because this is where it needs to be found out whether Reagan had any knowledge of the symptoms of exorcism before her symptoms actually started. And at that party scene, 
there's a psychic in the book that's invited that has this book on witchcraft that she loans to Chris. And in the book, there's a chapter on the state's possession. So, uh, so Chris starts reading it and starts reading a lot of it. So, and so some of the things are as follows. Uh, the Brandy Clinic thought she might have given rise to Reagan syndrome. So when she's starting to be examined right at the Berenger Clinic, mm-hmm. they're looking into this witchcraft book that Chris had been given by the psychic, and they found the book in, like, so they found the book in Reagan's room under her bed. And earlier on in the book, the book earlier on in the Exorcist, the novel, the book had gone missing from the kitchen table and nobody had noticed. So it's like left up to you whether or not Reagan stole it, read it, and thought in her subconscious. That's like, oh, I must be possessed. That's why I'm feeling this way. So like, See, that's what I wanted from the movie. <laughs> yes. And so in this, Chris reads this from, from the chapter because the, 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 the clinic at Barringer, when she admits Reagan, wants to know if, she had, if Reagan had any exposure to any sort of religious symptoms or implications of exorcism before her symptoms started because anytime your mind starts to fracture and break you're going to draw subconsciously onto whatever evidence you might have to explain away your symptoms because you, the way that your subconscious works is your subconscious is always going to try to protect you you know so if you're feeling a certain way your subconscious is going to go like oh shit we've heard about possession maybe we're possessed you know and so that's why in that scene that you'd mentioned before where Karis is like, did Reagan know that my mother died recently? And she says, why? And he goes, it's not important. Good night. Because if Karis says it to Chris, then it's in the household. Right. You know what I mean? And so when she's going through this book, she flips through the section that says the following immediately derivative of the prevalent belief in demons was the phenomenon known as possession a state in which many individuals believe that their physical and mental functions had been invaded were being controlled by either a demon, most common in the period under discussion, or the spirit of someone dead. There's no period of history or quarter of the globe where this phenomenon has not been reported, and in fairly constant terms, and yet it is still to be adequately explained. Since Trago Osterreich's definitive study, published in 1921, very little has been added to the body of knowledge, the advances of psychiatry notwithstanding. What is known is the following. That various people at various times have undergone massive transformations so complete that those around them feel they are dealing with another person. Not only the voice, the mannerisms, facial expressions, and characteristic movements are sometimes altered, but the subject himself now thinks of themselves as totally distinct from the original person and as having a name, whether human or demonic, and a separate history of its own. And in the Malay archipelago, where possession even now is an everyday common occurrence, the possessing spirit of someone dead often causes the possessed to mimic its gestures, voices, and mannerisms. So this continues, and Chris breaks off and says, there, Reagan's gibberish, an attempt at a language, you know, could that be what it is? You know, and she reads on, you know, or manifest various parapsychic phenomena, such as telekinesis, for example, the movement of objects without application of material force. These things are documented throughout medical history, okay? Mm-hmm. So we need to state that, that, like, it's not whether or not they think that the symptoms of possession are a thing. Medical science knows that they occur. Mm-hmm. And they have yet to adequately explain it. So the reason why they're so apprehensive at the very forefront to admit that she may be possessed 
is because now there's all kinds of stuff scattered throughout this book of all of these studies from Osterreich's study or Carl Jung's studies on demonic possession where they where they see these possessive symptoms take place but they have these conflicting like the holy water for example right that's something that very commonly happens you tell them that they're that it's holy water and they react very violently mm -hmm. and that happens fairly often to people who claim to be possessed so it's like all right well if it's tap water and it's not actually holy water like does that does that support a case for exorcism no it does not because if it were not holy water and it were an actual demon the demon would know the difference theoretically and so this like i said without boring all of the readers or all of the listeners to sleep okay you know like this has gone over in great length in the novel and so the question becomes whether or not reagan read this chapter on demonic possession before her symptoms started and that is not in the movie yeah and that's why i encourage people to read the book because of these things you know and I agree, so because literally like that was pretty much I, I do have some minor things that i'll bring up but like that was my biggest gripe with the entire movie was that they i feel like there was an opportunity to make it a like a mystery i guess of what's really happening but they instead right off the bat said okay well she's definitely possessed and it's just a matter of Karis, and I, I think it almost, to me, it almost takes away from Karis's character development, because us as the viewer, we know that he's wrong. Well, not necessarily. But, I mean, well, and I don't think it takes away from Karis's uh, character development necessarily, because Karis's crisis of faith becomes his actual struggle. Right, but I mean, as the audience watching, you could have that. You know, you could have that connection with him to where you're like, okay, well, maybe he's right to think this way. But instead, you're just like, okay, well, he's losing his faith, but this is real. We know it's real, so... Well, and that's, you know. part, of, and that's part of the major tragedy of Karis' character, that even though everyone else around him can see it, because mm -hmm. Chris tells him that, you know, and, and, and Chris tells him that, too. She's like, you show me Reagan's double, and I would know it in my gut, and I'm telling you that thing in her room is not my daughter. You know, and Karis still can't believe it because he's so far gone on his loss of faith. See, to me, the dead and, giveaway, I don't know. And I, I don't know why this wasn't something that was, I, I feel like it was really glanced well, and, over and if, and if, in the and movie. If you remember when, and if you remember when Marin shows up, like, Marin knows immediately. Yeah, that but that's, that's, yeah, that's my and thing. And still, I feel like Karis, Karis can't bring himself to believe it because this, this loss of faith, for, especially for a Catholic father mm -hmm. is, is 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 like a tragedy to them yeah and but, so there's so many passages that are given to Karis in the book where it's like it's a it's painful for him that he's like he did like it's like did he does he dare not bet again and lose you know and in the same way though it's like okay so she's possessed and even though we assume them to be more prevalent than they really are because possession cases since the turn of the century since 1900 there's been uh, I think now it's five, but there's been five formal rites of exorcism outside of the Vatican that have been officially authorized by the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. So these things are rare, you know, 
But that's only yeah. going for the Catholic Church. There's probably more undocumented in other branches of churches as well. But well, I mean, you can problem. see our, right online, you can go and look at, like, faith healers, and they're exercising demons from people. And... Plus, you gotta think there's people that don't get the authorized. Yeah. But, well, um... and, and the, uh, well, the other thing, too, it's like there was a warning given to would-be exorcists from the Catholic Church that said those in those in seeking the need like those in seeking the need of an exorcist are more are more in need of a doctor than a priest. Now I'm gonna let you guys guess at when that warning was officially given by the Catholic Church. That that people that, that are also seeking an exorcist is are, are more in need, of... in need of a doctor than a priest. I don't know. Should I say nineteen oh one? Sixteen sixty four. Salem Witch. Yeah. So the Catholic Church has long been at battle about whether or not, like, whether or not the prevalence and the appearance of, of Satan and evil is really something to be entirely believed. And most Catholics, even to this day, like, in overwhelming studies, don't believe in the devil anymore. Right. Despite the, the huge evidence to the contrary. And so that becomes a huge issue with the source of the novel is it's like, is there room for faith? Is there room for this? You know, and, and so Karis, as a man of science, who's become a pragmatist, a pragmatist and is broken by guilt and, and woe and, and everything else over the death of his mother, when he says he's lost his faith, he means he's lost his faith, you know? Mm -hmm. And so in that same way that it's like, uh, to a believer, there's nothing you can tell them that's going to dissuade them. Mm -hmm. And to a skeptic, there's nothing you can show them that makes it legitimate. See, and one thing to me that I, I don't know, I feel like it was really, it was glanced over in the movie, but I feel like it was supposed to be like a, a really big revelation is um when Karis is listening to the tapes and he realizes that what he's hearing is Reagan talking backwards. Yes. When he plays it backwards, it says Marin, yep. but Reagan at this point has had zero communication with Marin. Nobody knows Marin. He's not brought up until the church suggests him for this exorcism. Right. So, so that would be one supernatural aspect. Right. So I, I'm, I just, I'm kind of curious to why when Karis listens to this, and then they say, "Well, you're going to have Father Marin." do this, you know, exorcism with you, and he doesn't, I don't know why he doesn't think, like, oh, well, she React said Marin. Yeah, like, there's no reaction. It's bum, like, bum. it's like they they have this moment that's... an old Catholic guy. They don't react to shit. They have this moment where it's supposed, I feel like it's supposed to be a big revelation, and it just makes it less important. Well, and, and believe it or not, it's actually kind of that way in the book as well, where it's like, you're screaming at Karis at this point, you know, to where it's like you're screaming at him to where it's like, dude, you know, like, like, dude, you're wasting, like, his big warning to Chris is that it says, like, you'd be wasting valuable time, you know, in seeking an exorcism when you, she could be at Barringer in six months in the best hospital you can possibly find. And in that way, it even invokes, like, the exorcism of Emily Rose. Yeah. Be because it's like you're wasting valuable time where she's withering away, you know, and so... In trying to do the right thing, Karis really is making everything worse. Mm. 
because he can't get over his loss of faith. And that's one of the things he was warning the church about to start, you know, is that it's like he's so unfit for his position. And that's why his loss of faith is such a huge issue, even in the exorcism itself, because, and that's why, uh, Pazuzu, like, messes with Karis, like, like it does. Mm. And so it's like, because in the book, those scenes, Pazuzu messes with him quite a bit when he's like, when he pushes the drawer out and he says, uh, uh you know, it's like that, was that you that did that trick with the drawer? He goes, uh huh. And he says, do it again. And he says, in time, you know, he's like, no, now in time and in the when he's book, like what's my what's my mom's maiden name and you would know that or like and the reason what... right and the reason why Pazuzu messes with Karis is to keep him in this horrible turmoil mm-hmm. because if he gives him something 100% factual that it's 100% a demon that Karis will because one of the lines in the book that I really wish would have been in the movie was when he says, like, this is why I cherish all reasonable men. Nothing would ever prove anything at all to you, you know. And so if he gives Karis something that's completely undeniable, and like I'd already said that, like, telekinesis is seen and recognized by psychology as being entirely legitimate, but hardly supernatural. Now, don't ask me why, okay? I don't tell psychology today what to think, you know. But the world of psychology, and as a psychiatrist, he's almost been taught out of belief, mm-hmm. you know. And and so, in that way, it's like, okay, so a bout of telekinesis is not going to prove anything to Karis, and why does Pazuzu do it that way to keep him in this horrible indecision, you know, is, is to keep him in this horrible indecision? Because if Karis struggles with his faith, that almost guarantees and loads the deck that the exorcism will fail because because the power of exorcism only entirely works 100 percent if the belief from both the exorcist is entirely stalwart yeah you know and so keeping karis in this horrible turmoil cements the game for pazuzu that he's going to kill marin you know because without karis's faith he can't entirely be banished and so, and like, possibly kill Reagan, and and kill Reagan in the process because that's because that's the whole point of it. The more time he wastes, the more he's killing Reagan. You need to exit here, Reagan. So, with that being said, one mile away, isn't it? And so, like, I, I do want to mention this final point. That, like, um, I do want to mention this final point that. Uh, Yeah, you. Uh, well, no, you can take Snelling if it's coming up, but just find somewhere we need gas or run out of gas. Yeah. No, but I, uh, anyway, so um, Karis's crisis of faith becomes such a huge issue because without it, they can't entirely banish out Pazuzu. And so the question becomes, you know, one of the things that I hear a lot about possession movies, everybody says like, well, if you wanted to do some damage, why wouldn't you just possess Arnold Schwarzenegger? You know. <laughs> Uh, you know, somebody buff or whatever else is like because that's not the point of possession. Right. The point of possession is not to possess. The point of possession is us, is the watchers, mm-hmm. those of us that are watching and suffering and watching and watching those we love die. 
and Zuzu is really targeting Karis and Marin. Mm-hmm. And in taking Reagan, somebody so innocent and pure, and even in that way, the priests are dressed in black, and Karis. Oops, sorry. It's like Karis and Marin are dressed in white, or Karis and Marin are dressed in black, and Reagan is in white, which is traditionally the other way around. Evil right. is in black, and purity is in white, and so he's flipped those things. He's took somebody who's so beautiful and innocent, you almost grieve over those lovely scenes from the beginning, wishing that we could have them back. You know? Yeah. And so the point of it is to make us despair, those of us that are watching the possessed. So if Pazuzu can make Karis and Mary watch Reagan die, even though they've been calling upon their God and their God is silent, to shake their faith is the point of possession. And so it's like, no, the demon doesn't want to possess people and go kill people. The demon wants you to see yourself as a piece, as, as degraded and depravitous and evil and ugly and wants you to lose your faith mm-hmm. and to wither away. Well, that's how they win. Right, exactly. And so in keeping Karis in this horrible middle ground, giving him just enough to keep investigating, but giving him not enough to entirely say one way or the other in Karis's mind, keeps him in this horrible place where he can continue to work on Karis, wear him down, break him down. And then so many times throughout history, exorcists themselves have even become possessed. Mm-hmm. And it happens in the end of this movie. Yeah. You know, so and- I, I do want to go into um, the third act of this movie, which is, you know, the biggest part of the movie, and that's the exorcism scene itself. Um, right. We start... Karis and Marin get there, and um, I feel like at, at this point, Pazuzu gets what it wants, which is Marin. Right. And I feel like it's at this point that it can fully reveal to Karis what it is. Um, and you get. But this at the same scene. time, um, he doesn't get what he wants because he wants to literally. He wants to kill Marin, and Marin dies on him. Yeah. Well, yeah, Marin dies before it can be entirely finished, but in the same, Marin's still dead. True. I don't like, continue now. Continue. We don't, we don't like <laughs> You're good. But, um, I, I mean, you get this, to me, the, the creepiest part of this movie, it's not Reagan at all, or Pazuzu. Although her makeup is great. Yeah, no, oh, it, it's yeah. absolutely, makeup is 100%. Special effects were great. I mean, we skipped over, um... The spider walk scene where she goes down the stairs which was originally cut yeah it was cut they added it back in because they were able to digitally remove the wires because they said it it looked bad right i would have liked to see it slower because i feel like it was too fast but yeah. yeah but um the the creepiest part of this movie for me that really it makes me uncomfortable for some i don't know why but um when Karis walks back into the room when they're in the middle of the exorcism and he sees his mother like sitting there where Reagan should be and she's just like sitting upright and looking at him and the actress who played his mother is actually um, one of the cast members that had passed away while they were making this movie but she was like I think like 90 or like almost 90. Um, She was one of the ones they say is cursed because yeah but there's like 
She, I was just going to say, a 90-year-old dies, and you're going to say the set's cursed? <laughs> no, there's more that happened besides okay. that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, you get you get these moments where Pazuzu's able to reveal herself. I mean, Regan's body lifts off the bed completely. Right. And um, when they're splashing the holy water on her, her skin's literally ripping open. Right. Which, I, it only shows it once. But it's enough to where you can know what's happening, you know? Right, exactly. They didn't overdo it to where, you know, there's just gashes everywhere and blood spraying everywhere. It didn't need it, you know? Right, absolutely. And that's that's the thing with this movie is that same thing when we talked about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It doesn't need blood and gore and guts and craziness to To create the vibe it's trying to create. Exactly, yeah. Right, And, and in that way, like with proper horror... I think it just comes down to whatever the story needs. Right. And and um, the blood, guts, and the gore, if you can marry that with a perfectly well-told story, phenomenal. But like you mentioned, like I always call it like emotional gore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And so in that way, like if you can wither a character away, like Harris is probably my favorite character in probably all of creative lore. Uh, like his guilt from the very start is, is nearly overwhelming. And it just gets worse and worse and worse throughout the entire book. The poor guy, like, and that's the thing with these possession movies that so many of them are missing and lacking is the slow tightening of the vice. Yeah. And I mean, and, you see uh, it too when they're doing the possession and Pazuzu says to him, like, you know, it's your fault. Your mom's dead. Like just digging away at him more and more. And it's like at that point when he's at his lowest, it just keeps digging more and more. Right, exactly. And so, like, at that point, you know, uh, people would look at it, and I've gotten the stupid people, like, people at that point would look at it and be like, well, that would seal it for me. I'd be a believer. And it's like, a lot of times with issues and crises of faith, uh, I think, especially in horror movies, I think it's, it's, I think we like to think we're more altruistic than we really are. Mm-hmm. And we're not inside of it, you know, so we can't really entirely feel it one way or the other and it's like it's like wow well, you know i would be a believer 100 it's like well these things exist you're just not looking for them mm-hmm. yeah you and know I mean, it, it never gives too much away and that's where again I, I keep bringing it up but where i would have liked to see it a little more open-ended because had they not added you know reagan being lifted off the bed or you know her body getting cut open by the holy water the things that pazuzu says like it's your fault your mother's dead it's very vague you know, right? Is, yeah. If Reagan knows that his mother's dead, she can say things like "It's your fault, your mom's." Dead. You can say that with anybody who passes away, and you know it's it's gonna eat somebody away one way or another. If somebody that they cared about passed away, and Especially you're saying it's your if fault, like the you know? smallest ounce of guilt for exactly. something during that. Exactly, and then like your mother sucks cocks in hell, which a plus line there, but right, <laughs> it's not actually in the book, believe it or not. But, but um, she does do it. No, <laughs> right, but um. <laughs> Like, little things like that, it's enough to eat away at a character, but it's vague enough to where it's not like it, like, Pazuzu didn't give him his mother's maiden name. It didn't give him any detail that could ultimately say, okay, this character is definitely possessed, it's definitely a demon, as, as, right. far, as, di- as far as dialogue goes. I feel right. like that and... would be fun for, for Pazuzu. <laughs> right. Well, that's and the that, thing, yeah. And, um... And William Friedkin 
makes a, a phenomenal point uh, towards the end of the movie. He says, uh, he goes, he goes, I've talked to a lot of people about this movie and ultimately what they take, what you take from it is what you bring to it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, if you're a man of science and you're a, a pragmatist, not like it, like that line from the book, nothing at all will prove anything to you. And you'll see her as this broken schizophrenic person. Well, like, and like Kara says, and it's not a lie. Okay. I really want to hit this home. It's like, it's like, she doesn't say he's, she's a demon she says he she's the devil himself and if you've seen as many psychotics as i have you realize that the same thing as saying you're napoleon bonaparte mm-hmm. and that's true like like if you if you study abnormal and advanced psychology there's weird fucking shit <laughs> you know and like and we see these possession cases and we see it so far outside the norm and realm of like psychology but it's really not you know and uh, it, it, it's it's really not Two of the things that are mentioned in the book, uh, one was a case study that a psychologist did with death row inmates, and he wanted to test the power of hypnosis and auto-suggestion. So he put the guy under, and he said, okay, I'm going to make two incisions in your arms. The left arm will bleed, and the right arm will not. This has been documented by three other doctors that were, that were watching the procedure at the time, the, uh, and this the is left, this is an actual thing, right? It's not this is an that actual. Made up for the book. This is an okay. actual thing. The okay. left arm bled, and the right arm didn't. And the, the left arm bled, and the right arm didn't. You know, there there's cryptonesia, or like somebody who uh, there was a uh, a Sumerian uh, housemaid, or no, a student in in I believe Sumeria. Either way, uh, this girl was uh, was staying in a boarding house. One day, she started speaking in Sumerian, and everybody thought she was speaking in tongues. And when we came to find out later that there was a housemaid who recited her prayers in Sumerian, mm-hmm. and and she had heard this Sumerian being being uttered up and down these steps, and this is called cryptonesia, and it frequently happens to people when they're on their deathbed, where they'll recall information that is buried in their subconscious for years, you know, so much so that. Uh, people will pick up skills that they've never known or studied. I wonder before. if that's where the whole like life flashing before your eyes things come from. A- abs- absolutely. And so now I'm now look I'm not here to tell you definitively one way or the other. I'm, all I'm saying is that it's like I do feel like as a psychiatrist, you know, if you were having a massive loss and crisis of faith. I could 100% believe how a case like this would not convince you until the very end, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I, like it just, at least, at least in my take, anyway, you know, like, and given the weird shit, like that I've studied or, or, uh, uh serial killers, for instance, mm-hmm. some of the just depravitous fucked up things they do, you know, and they don't even have an explanation for it. You know, but well, I mean, look at like the son of Sam who was killing people and said that his neighbor's dog told him to do it and he was possessed and you know, it, right. it's like yeah. And so and and I believe now I I believe he had recanted that later and mm-hmm. said that he made it up. You know, so there's all this stuff that's up in the air as far as like. Is it stuff that's open? Is it things? Is it demons in the air? And is, does Christianity have it right or whatever? I, you know, I I don't know, but I do believe that 
it is frustrating. I 100% understand that the people would watch this and look at Karis and be like, dude. Yeah. <laughs> but having a master's degree in forensic psychology, I've like I've studied weird shit and shit that's like has no explanation, just the limitless powers of the human mind. There was this girl uh, who spoke only in anagrams. And spoke only in anagrams, and so, and, yeah. and, and so she would make up these nonsense words, and that, and this is in the book too. Like she spoke only in anagrams, and so she'd speak out these nonsense gibberish syllables, and then the interp- the doctor had to try to interpret it. And one day he had taken one that he interpreted to say like I am Clelia, and he says like, and and he says who is Clelia and. She gave him another anagram, and it interpreted out to say, I, Clelia, feel. And so the next day, when he asked her who Clelia was, she had no recollection of the entire thing. Hmm. So, uh, in the annals of human psychology and psychiatry, you know, and that's why I like that quote from William Friedkin. He says, like, what you bring to the exorcist is more or less what you take away from it. And so I do now now I do agree with you, Dylan, that like it's not left as entirely open-ended as like psychology people would probably want. But like from the standpoint of who wrote it, they're very open about that, that they had written it Christianically. Right. You know, so that's something you're going to have to take, reject, you know, whatever. I feel, like, I feel like, too, that that's just me, like... Finding something? Not finding something, but, like... Well, I've been spoiled I've been spoiled with watching this movie 45 years later where stuff like that, that happens, you know? Where they have right. movies with plot twists and, like, all these, like, open-ended things. Like, I'm sure I would think diff- differently about it if we were doing this or having this conversation, you know, in 1973 after the movie came out when we were walking out of the theater, you know? Well, and I mean, and it's just, I mean, that just comes down to a matter of preference. I mean, and you shouldn't feel bad for preferring one thing or the other, you know? I mean, uh, if you like more ambiguous endings, it's just something that you prefer, you know, but... See, that's the thing, uh, is I usually fucking hate ambiguous endings, so I don't know why I'm, like... I don't know why this movie... I don't know why this movie makes me want one. Because I usually am the one that complains about open-ended well, movies. I, well, let me let me take a, a stab in the dark. I think that the same reason why you want a more ambiguous ending, and why a lot of people, for that matter, because there's a lot of people that I talk to that do want an ambiguous ending. You know, that they're like, oh, I wish it wouldn't have been. I wish it wouldn't have been so preachy in the end. You know. It's like, I don't think it was preachy. I just think that they, the writers, were like, this is what we believe it is. And so they wrote yeah. it that way. Yeah. yeah. You know? and, uh, and I got a lot of respect for that, you know, and uh, regardless, whatever I might or might not believe. But let me put it to you this way. I think one of the reasons why why people and, and Dylan, that people, you know, they, that viewpoint is prevalent is because of the same reason why Kara struggles the entire movie. Because it's hard for us to accept that there might be, like, it's hard for us to accept that Christianity might be legitimate. John, you know, just blew my fucking mind. And, and in that way, it's the same thing that Karis goes through the entire movie. 
you know, and so it's like, well, I wish they would have been more ambiguous because then I, then I wouldn't, then I don't have as much to think about. Yeah. You know, because if it's like, if you believe that it's Christianic and it's because that's how they present it, you know, it's like, it's Christianic. Well, if I have to accept that, then I, I better, you know, I better start reading the Bible and try to figure it out for myself. Exactly. You know? And I think that that makes people uncomfortable because faith, like I had started this whole thing and like any good thing, when you start with a plan, you get off topic and, you know, all the other shit happens. But like I'd started by saying, that's why I think this story is so immeasurably important to just humanity as a whole, because it gets at the thing that vexes all of us is who's actually got it right you know what i mean mm. and it's it's like well if it's like well maybe psychology maybe it's christianity it's up to you well these guys say it's christianity <laughs> and you can't really no i'm not saying they're right or wrong you know but that's how they wrote it right and i think that makes people fidget a little bit because it's like uh, i don't know i don't like christianity you know, like, it's so definitive, I guess. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. And it, it, it is know. an interesting thing to bring up, like the parallel between me wanting the ambig- ambiguity, ambiguity, ambiguity. There we go. We got there. there you know. Just <laughs> um, sound it out. Yeah. Um, sound it out. The parallel between me wanting that and and uh, Karis almost wanting the same thing. So. Yeah. I mean, he wanted the exact same deal too. And and this is why like this became like going all the way back to the beginning, the whole full circle thing that I spit out all the time. It's like when the first time I had watched this, I, I couldn't stop watching it because it, it, it rocked everything I thought I knew about everything, not just storytelling, but as far as faith and spiritualism and psychology and everything, you know, that's when Becca gives me all that, shit and I, and I never take myself too seriously so i'll laugh about it but it but it's there's a reason like yeah it's, i couldn't stop thinking about it and these are the answers oh, these sorry. are the questions these are the questions that i think really need answering you it know it kind of makes me curious like i understand that you know the nature of the movie is this like evil demon you know i i understand that but it kind of makes me i i find it kind of funny that this movie's like hated on and dismissed by so many religious people when it's pretty much saying that you know this yeah it's is all real <laughs> it's like it's like dude they're fighting for you bro yeah exactly <laughs> they are like your team you're starting a war for nothing <laughs> right it's like they're, they're fighting for you bro you but know? um i i do want to start to wrap things up so um absolutely let it let's get into ratings okay and John, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess your rating off the bat. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. No, I don't have to uh, dig too deeply. I think for it um, with I'm stories like this, um, you know, I'm not gonna preach too far here. I'm gonna give this thing a ten out of uh, you know a ten out of ten. It's really, really close to my heart in a lot of different ways. I have tattoos of this thing, and even though we covered this, I feel like I didn't even begin to do it even the slightest bit of justice. Bye, let's get out. And um, Stories like this, I think, ascend the horror genre. They do, they're more than the horror genre. The horror genre perfectly accepts them. Yeah. But I think that they're, they're more than that. They're, they're, they, they deserve to be studied. They deserve to be looked into because 
These are stories of grave matters. They're stories of life and death. They're stories of life and death. They're, they're grave matters. It's the issue. It's the stories and the issues that matter to the largest, best pieces of us. You know that, and it's and it's and it's the the greatest story as old as time. The, the literally the eternal battle of good and evil. However, you want to frame this, whether it's Catholicism or whether it's superheroes or whether you want to frame it as however you want to frame it like the, 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 the evil queen and the princess the, the, or... the, the eternal battle of good and evil that speaks to the humanity of us all and what makes this even more so is this puts you the viewer almost through a crisis of faith yourself and you might not have thought about christianity for years and i think what makes people fidget with this is that like it forces you to almost have a crisis of faith if you're going to believe in letting this story work. And um, this, the people that I speak to about this, that like, that like wanted to, like, well, I wasn't scary, wasn't this or whatever else. And it's like, that I feel like is a cancer to the horror genre as a whole. Yeah. This entire like, oh, I wasn't scared of it. It's like, if, it's like this whole, I wasn't scared of it as like, Horror is like magic and hypnosis and fun in general. It, it doesn't work unless you let it. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to want to let these things work. You have to want, you know, these things to do well. And I think that um, anybody that anybody that casts these movies out, like, oh, I'm not scared of it. I'm not afraid of it. It's like, I think you were too afraid to consider what the movie wanted you to actually think about. You know, and I think that the easiest way to cast it off is to make fun of it and say that it's dumb and that it's not worth your time to really think about and everything else. Like, I think you're kind of scared to consider the deeper matters inside us all, you know, and I and I think that those stories demand our attention. They demand they demand everybody be forced to look at them, you know, and uh, in that same way, I mean, everything is so well done from every single point in this movie, like William. Friedkin in the commentary talks about how every time you see Karis, he's always ascending. You know, he's always ascending into, into the shots. And so metaphorically to tell you that like Karis, like metaphorically to tell you that like Karis ends up ascending, his spirit ends up ascending to heaven. And that heartfelt, wonderful scene, like two of my favorite scenes in the entire movie to this day, number one is, uh, is that death scene with Father Dyer you know, and there's a beautiful sense the way that it ends in the book or whatever. It says like, uh, he says like at the very, he's like, he's like ego te absolvo. He says like in Karis, like Karis, uh, his grip slackened on Father Dyer's hands, and in his eyes, Dyer finally saw a look of jubilation and of joy, like love's returning at the end of love's grown cold. He's like, and Karis stared out, but at nothing in this world, and so. In that sentence, you finally see that Karis was rewarded, mm. you know, that he did ascend, you know, and and that good matters, I guess. You know, yeah, we get that there's hope that there is hope. And um, and it's like despite Karis's gigantic crisis of faith, you know, I know I'm, I I was talking to some guy one time. He just whatever. He's like, I started laughing. We started punching a little girl. I was like, really? What part of that was was humorous to you? <laughs> Like, was it was it was it the fact that you just watched a priest, uh, like about one of the most virtuous people you could possibly imagine, die of heart failure trying to save this twelve-year-old girl, or was it the priest that was so wrought 
guilt ridden over the death of his mother and his and his loss of faith and his failure to save this little girl and the guilt that he had basically made everything worse the entire time. And then he breaks wanting to save her so desperately that he's screaming at he's like come like he's coming to me, sacrificing himself. Yeah. You know. I do want to watch this movie and, again with a counter of how many times Reagan bitch slaps somebody. Oh yeah. <laughs> because she slaps the shit out of everybody in this movie. <laughs> yeah, no joke, right? And so like and so like when he when he says like you know, when he's like, Oh, I was punching the little girl and it's like it's funny to me. It's like what part of that is humorous? I feel like at that point you're refusing to consider the gravity of what you're watching. Mm-hmm. And the only way you can actually, the only way you can actually deal with it appropriately in people's subconscious. Cause like, okay, I will wrap this up. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll try to make this quick. And I, I warned everybody when I started okay, <laughs> and I love this movie a lot, but, but the, but the, uh, I think people like to think that being frightened, almost as a sign of weakness and people want to like kind of talk about how like oh i wasn't scared of this movie or that movie or whatever else like it didn't scare me it was dumb it's like i don't really have a lot of respect for those people because it's been clinically shown time after time that imagination and suspension of disbelief are huge psychological factors to the strength of your inner constitution and of your intellect so it doesn't take intellect to make fun of something and to reject another worldview. It takes a very hyper intellect to accept a suspension of disbelief and to accept another world. So for the two and a half hours that the exorcist is going for you to suspend your disbelief and accept what the story is trying to tell you and to let yourself go along for the ride and to be frightened of it shows a very hyper stimulated intellect. And like to constantly reject it, I think is is not only not fun, it just does you a disservice as a human being. So a similar thing. I, I have this argument with people all the time. Um, the first evil dead, everybody's like, yeah. Oh, that movie's hilarious. And I'm like, that movie's fucking terrifying. They're like, how could you take it seriously? It's so out there. And it's like, that's why it's terrifying. <laughs> right. And, and well, it, cause you're being it's pushed like to the extreme. Yeah. Right. It's like, it's being pushed to the extreme. Some, well, I, I always say that to people like make them speak it out loud. Yeah. You know, so it's like, I found it funny. Which part did you find particularly hilarious? <laughs> yeah. Let me break this you know, down for you, friend. He had to kill his right. sister? It's like the, the point when he had to decapitate his uh, his girlfriend and she bled, her, her bleeding corpse bled all over his face. Or was it the point when he had to gouge out Scott's eyes, one of his best friends? Or was it, you know, like which point of it actually made you laugh? Or hey, listeners, just, tune in next week when we cover Evil Dead. Right. It's like, or, <laughs> right. It's like, or, you know, are you just afraid of doing what these really intense stories want you to do, which is gravitate on yourself? Mm-hmm. And well, to really think too, about what these stories don't tell go you to about the yourself. Core of the story either a lot of people sit on the surface, so right, and and because they're too afraid to actually look inside. So, like in in the same way that Karis goes through this crisis of faith, the viewer goes through it as well through the entire time, and all of it really comes absolutely full circle with Karis ascending every single time you see him, and then in one of the final scenes, Chris walks up as he's sitting down there dejected. Everything has failed. He's broken entirely after he, he screams, "You're not my mother!" You know, and he goes and he's sitting down on the bench and he's dejected. And Chris looks at him. She says, is she going to die? And he looks up at her with this haunted look. And it was like in that moment, he finally could believe again mm-hmm. because of his incredible love for this girl. When when you think about it, he never did meet Reagan. Mm-hmm. He only knew her possessed. 
So he never did me- he never did meet her, but he still had this incredible love for her to save her despite everything. And so he looks up at Chris and he just goes, "No." Like he knows mm-hmm. in the, in that moment, and that's what the and that's what he needed the entire movie. And Karis has this incredible redemption story, and it's it's beautiful. I'll quit talking now. I am like, <laughs> I, it, it's it's beautiful. I think it's phenomenal. I think that it's. I think anybody that can't see that or won't even entertain that idea is being obstinate and difficult. And so, <laughs> I, I, no, I you're think, you're uh, good. Sierra gushed and, last week with Texas Chainsaw. I'm sure that I'll gush gush next week with Evil Dead. We're covering right. all our favorite movies this month, so I mean it's kind of expected. Right. <laughs> so Becca. Uh, end, end of it. I'm gonna give this a ten out of ten. It's it's phenomenal. I'll pass okay. it on. <laughs> Becca, what you got? Well, um, damn, Becca, you sound so clear. <laughs> uh, basically, John pretty much talked about everything I wanted to talk about. I think. He covered on all of the bases of the characters that were in the movie. And um, the, the only piece that I was sad the movie did not cover was the development of Carl. Um, because the, the, the servant guy. Because he actually ended up coming under suspicion for the murder of the director. Because he kept going off at strange times. Mm-hmm. Not covered in the movie, covered in the book. Because he had a daughter who was a drug addict, so he would go and help take care of her. But mm-hmm. he kept it hush-hush, because that was his own personal business, and nobody else needed to know about that. <laughs> but not touched on in the movie, bummer, but the movie is still fantastic without it. Um, and And I don't think it took away from the movie. That's just... A little tiny piece that I wish would would have been another little cool nugget to include, but still, ten out of ten for for the emotional turmoil, the the psychological turmoil that this whole movie puts you through, mm-hmm. and it, it's a fantastic journey. This movie is a journey. You want to go on it, even if it will break your heart, but there's still hope. As long as the little girl survives, we're all happy. <laughs> all right. So, 10 out of 10. Sierra, what you got? Uh, this movie, this one is a battle for me when uh, when it comes to rating with a number, just because I think, and, and Dylan and I talked about this last night, it's very, um, the story is, is, is amazing. It's a great story. Um, and and I, I do think that the questioning of religion and faith and stuff like that, I, I always love stuff like that. Whether you believe or not, I just, I don't know. There's something about religion that's so fucking interesting to me. Oh, yeah. But, um, and all religions, not just Catholicism. Catholicism actually kind of scares me a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's intense, that's for sure. It's, yeah, it's really intense. It's like, it's so, like, mm. Most organized religions scare me a little bit. I just think of like The Simpsons with that's a paddling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, that's I, that's that's my that's my view of Catholicism. Whenever well, I think you, of it, like any type of Christianity really scares me because I remember being a little girl in church, and uh, like we were playing tag and we like tagged like one of the kids too hard or something, and they had like 
they scolded me and they were like that's not christian like and like that's that's bad that's not okay and i was terrified because i didn't mean to hurt like i didn't do anything you know what i mean and right. like I, re- I have like this memory of being like eight and just like it kind of just ruined the whole thing for me right. <laughs> it's weird but um as a st- I like the story more so than I liked the actual film. Mm-hmm. And I think, honestly, for me, I don't know what it is about the film. It's not even that I dislike the film either. Like, I think it's good. It's just there's something that's not there for me that I need. And I can't put my finger on what it is. Like, I like the characters. I don't know. I, I just feel like it's a little slow it's I don't I'm not good with long movies I think that's what it is that, honestly you are terrible with long movies I'm yeah. horrible no, yeah. with long slow movies burns. in yeah. general like I'm just like I can do slow burns but like it like I am like that person that's like and it comes from my dad he's the same way we Sarah's started... dad is that Sarah's dad is that guy that like if a like he'll watch three different TV channels at the same time because the second one goes on commercial he'll flip to another one to oh. another one so <laughs> like he gets bored and and that's my thing is like I, I don't think my attention span lasts two and a half hours and like dylan drags me to these freaking theater movies all the time and he's like oh yeah we're gonna go at like 10 at night and uh we're gonna watch a two and a half hour movie and i'm like do you know who you're married to sir like, i can't make it i can't and sometimes it's like as it's to the point where like as long as I cut it in half. So if well, I, watch... I sent John a video last night because I was like recording me watching it and you just hear you snoring. <laughs> right? Yeah, I do that. And it's like, it's like, I'll, so I'll watch half of it and then I'll say, okay, I'm done. What time is it? How far am I into it? And then I have to watch the second half because I just can't handle that much at once. It's just too much for me. I, and... I've done the same thing with John. I fall asleep on it all the time i'm a marathon guy man i can go for hours i don't know though i think that i'm probably a lot meaner because if dylan tried to wake me up to rewatch a movie that we just watched i'd probably rip his head off (laughs) like literally i think i'd probably lose my mind i'm asleep like i sleep is so important to my soul it's ridiculous (laughs) but i'm getting way off track i do think this movie is really excellent and after hearing so much about the book I think that any issue that I did have with the movie, I would would be cleared up by reading the book. So I think that's definitely something. I think we actually own the book. We might. If not us, my sister did. So I knew I know I have the copy. I have a copy of the book because it had the it was a copy with the same cover as the movie after the like with him under the. Mm-hmm. Um, and if not, we can always loan you a book. But that, send it with the cookies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I could send it like, and I have the 40th anniversary edition, so it's. Yeah. I, I want, I want the cookies decorated like the movie. Like I want it to be them to be really specific. Cute cookies. green icing. Yeah. <laughs> yes, please. Breaking cookies. Pea soup. Yeah. Pea soup. Yeah. So serious. I like pea soup though. I do like pea soup. Okay. Me too. <laughs> I'm gonna give this movie just because my attention span sucks. I'm going to give it a 7.3. 73, the year it came out. Yeah, there, no. that's... <laughs> All right. Um, so for me with this movie, there's so much... I, I feel like, like we've covered, this movie is very story-driven. 
And I think that it's something that I'd enjoy more reading it than watching it because I feel like a lot of the detail is something that would be better read than watched. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but... I think well, everything's better read than I, watched. Yeah, I feel like, for me, the pacing of the movie was my biggest We'll read complaint. it every night to max. <laughs> The, right. the pacing with the movie was my biggest complaint, and um, it's not even that it was poorly paced, it's just, you get a scene, and the scene lasts a long time, and by halfway through the scene, you understand what's happening, but they just continue with the scene, and it, it's something, I don't really know how to explain it, it's the same thing Sierra said, like, it's, there's just something there that every time I watch the movie, it kind of puts me off to it sure. but what re-watching it now as i'm older and being able to ex- like understand he, did say this, he very much enjoyed it yeah i being able to understand the story more and appreciate the story more and appreciate oh, yeah, little that's a good point yeah too. appreciate the story a little bit more and not just the story but little things like the music in this movie we never brought up is fucking amazing. Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. yeah. like there, there's so many things in this movie. And John, the imagery that you had brought up, like um, Karis, every time he's shown, he's lifted up. Um, th- there's so much to this movie. Like you said, John, we've we've been talking almost two hours about this movie, and we've barely dived into like the deep, deep details on it. You know. Well, a lot of those, uh, like the psychiatric, the psych, like I got into like one or two of them, and I had like five or six others written down. Yeah, to, so to get to, you know, I feel like um, if you're a fan of slow burn movies or like story driven movies, then this absolutely is for you. But I can also understand and appreciate. Or if people you think who... you might be demonic possessed, <laughs> I, right. I can I can see and understand and appreciate why people don't enjoy the movie because I've. I feel like looking at this movie now, there are it's very mixed. Um, I, I talk to people all the time that are like I I don't like The Exorcist. I think it's overrated. But then I talk to people that are like, yeah, the movie's fucking gold. Right. And then like, you have the people gold. that are so afraid of its of its um, you know, legend, the legend. Yeah. That they won't even watch it. So, I mean, you have and to... And that's pretty impressive on its own. Yeah, I mean, whether you like the movie or not, you have to appreciate the legacy that it's made. The movies... I mean, there's all these possession movies now that have come out that probably would never have been made or even thought of had it not been for this movie or story. It's so true. whether you like the movie or... This is by far the best possession movie. Yeah, whether you like the movie or not, you have to appreciate it in that degree. But... Watching it, I understand why it's a classic. I think that the story is amazing. Um, I am going to rate it an 8.5. But I feel that... I'm rating it an 8.5 because I feel that the book is going to be a 10 when I read it. So I don't want to rate the movie a 10 if the book is better, if that makes sense. Well, it would be a different rating scale. Yeah, it would be a different... I would venture to say that, like, I would not have appreciated the movie near because I read the book first, mm-hmm. and so like uh, I think it gives you a deeper understanding of everything oh, going on. Yeah, so, like the and I think that's is, what we're missing. I, yeah, I, I honestly think that's what it is because my complaints with the movie that I brought up when we first started talking about it, John, you right away said that's addressed in the book. Right. So yeah. I think yeah. I think that's the biggest problem, and it's any movie that 
based on a book. Is, is based on a book is that it leaves out details that sometimes are important. Especially and, when and you're I already, think that's why both of us gave it a ten because we, we both, both read, read the book exactly. Book so, like, it still killed it with a score though. Yeah, so that gives us an average rating of a nine out of ten. I'm good with that. Like I would like. Uh, uh, I will, I will, I will say this just to not immediately piss off everybody. I'm not gonna say that anybody that doesn't dig the movie is a piece of shit. Like, that's not, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. No, no, no. I'm not, like, I'm not implying that at all. It, no. If you didn't dig it, for anybody that stuck in for the whole thing, if you didn't dig it, mm-hmm. I get that. Like, not everything is for everybody. I understand that. But to yeah. sit there and say that it's silly and it's stupid and like to not even like, it's, it's like if you didn't dig it, that's one thing. But to say that it's silly, I think is being. Um, I wasn't oh, oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm not, I wasn't implying that at all, John. I'm just saying... Like, oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I do understand what you mean, because I talk to people all the time, they're like, that movie's not even scary, and it's like, that's not the point. Like, right, It's exactly. either you like the movie, and you give the reasons why you like the movie, or you don't like the movie, and you... But saying, oh, that's not scary, isn't a good enough reason for me to not like a movie. Right, and they'll talk about it like it's, like it's a joke. Exactly. But, like yeah. John had said earlier, too, is that this isn't just... Like, this, this movie goes way past horror yeah, yeah exactly and, this, and, is, this is a, sincerely this is a this journey this is a book yeah <laughs> right to me to me this movie i don't even i don't even look at it as horror really and i understand that it is horror like i'm not saying that but to me it's just a deep story with horror elements yeah right. yeah i do i honestly think um i think the main plot point of this movie is not the horror aspect i think the main plot point um, I don't know if you guys would agree with me. I think it's definitely um, the question of faith versus science. Well, absolutely, one hundred percent. And like the and the gaps, you know, the the because the movie's already pushing two and a half hours, and so it's like, and it's already <laughs> as is our hours. podcast. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's like it's pushing two and a half hours, and so like in things like that, you're gonna have to shorten up like an entire scene in the book to like three absolutely. or four sen- like three or four mm-hmm. sentences. And now so, I don't think I don't think I've ever watched the like because the movie's like I, I think it's like two hours and twelve minutes around that. But and the director's cut is two and a half. And it's fantastic. You know. Oh, uh, well, I don't know. We watched we watched some sort of cut of the movie because it has the spider walk and everything in it. But like I know that the original cut is like an hour and like fifty seven minutes or something. Yeah. So. I've never watched that version, the hour and fifty-seven minute one, but I like kind of want to watch it just to see what else they cut out of it. That oh, absolutely. Quick question. Um, well, I suppose if you guys didn't watch, uh, well, okay, the the version that you guys watched, did it have the scene with them in the stairwell where Kara says, "Why this little girl?" Uh, I think so. Okay, so yeah, then you guys probably watched uh, a restored version of it. I, I know, I'm pretty sure mine's like two. I actually have the theatrical. Because, like, in the 40th Collector's Edition thing, I have it's the original theatrical and then the big extended one. So yeah, I should well, probably, have... I'll, I'll pop that in, actually, one of these days and watch it and see what's, what's all going Yeah, because we have, I mean, we were with you guys when I bought the, the VHS of it, and um, that's the original version. That's the hour and, like, 57-minute version. Right. But sure. um, I want, I, we were going back and forth whether, with, like, which one we should watch, and I wanted to watch the, um, the one we have on DVD, which we bought it probably about 10 years ago now. And it's like two hours and twelve minutes, and it's labeled as like the director's cut, uncut version. But sure. I mean, I'm sure that I'm sure that since then they've put out ones with even more scenes in it. So the 40th anniversary. Yeah. Well, and I don't so, know. I, I'll check. I'll I'll, t- I'll take a look at it and then message you up and and let you know what 
what might be different or whatever else, you know? Yeah. But, but well, it's yeah. the same thing with like the shining though. Like I consider the shining, the miniseries, the movie and the book all as one mythos. Yeah. And so like the exorcist, the book and the movie I consider is like one big, huge story. Well, like the, yeah, the like shining, the, the movie itself. and the, the shining, the movie and the miniseries, you could think of it almost like it's the same story, but told just from someone else who mm-hmm. was there. And, mm-hmm. and each one does something that the other one can't provide. Mm-hmm. you know and and so like in that like i would i would 100 percent go on the limb i don't know if i'd say that already like had i not read the book i don't know that i would have appreciated the movie quite as much as i did yeah mm-hmm. you know well, uh, i think that's I, I think that's honestly when me and sarah say that we like there's something there that's missing i, I think that is, i think it's that's small what it is. details yeah. that just don't complete it for us yeah i think right, that sure. reading the book i think that reading the book i mean regardless we still gave it like i'm reading, i'm yeah. usually pretty in pretty much an asshole with my rating so yeah, you're harsh, i feel pretty kind <laughs> well absolutely can you well now uh in the uh liner notes like one of the directors that was offered this and turned it down was stanley kubrick now, i'm a I huge i'm a huge kubrick nerd yeah and kubrick is known for not giving a shit about run times <laughs> and so can you imagine what he like like i mean it would have been hours later yeah, four hours Oh yeah. I kind of I kind of want to see it though. <laughs> Absolutely. I would I would Bring I would back. suck that movie's dick so hard. Actually <laughs> <laughs> like, just made by Stanley Kubrick, bet your ass. <laughs> with that yeah. being said. Yeah. Right. All right, so yeah, that being said, we're gonna wrap up the episode. We wanna thank you guys for listening. Thank you, John and Becca, for coming on. We've missed you. Yeah, oh, we've we missed you guys too. too. So um, be sure to tune in next week. We're going to be covering Evil Dead. I know that last week we covered Texas Chainsaw Massacre and we said Evil Dead was going to be the following episode. But surprise, it's The Exorcist. Hope you enjoyed it anyway. And enjoy the Evil Dead next week. So yeah. be sure to follow us on... That was um, impressive. Thanks. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Horror Haven Podcast. On Twitter at Horror underscore Haven. We love you. We appreciate you guys. Have a good night. And the secret is it's only done on the... <laughs> <laughs>